Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing well. This week we have another set of amazing spooky stories. They'll be perfect to listen to with the weather getting colder and the nights getting longer. Well, let's get into it, as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I was nearly spirited away, and I fear that it might happen again. Written by 02321 I began to get a bit self-conscious of my weight. I wasn't overweight, but I certainly wasn't skinny either. High school had long since passed, and my metabolism currently reminded me that I couldn't keep eating the same care this way without putting at least a nominal effort into shedding some pounds. After a few rounds of publicly embarrassing myself at the local gym, I decided to try something a little bit easier. I lived within walking distance of a beautiful park and I began hiking. I had a variety of trails of which the beginner trails were the only ones even close to my skill level. I could take a nice walk at my own pace, away from the judgmental eyes of meathead gym rats while listening to some audiobooks. It wasn't going to result in drastic weight loss by any means, but at least it was some sort of physical activity. I soon realized hiking wasn't all that bad. If you could put aside the sweating and the bug bites. God, the bug bites. The fresh air and pleasant scenery relaxed me. Any low-impact cardio would definitely help to jumpstart my sluggish metabolism. I was tearing through audiobooks at record speeds. I found myself nearly finished with what had seemingly been an unending list of them. I'm sure most people would have preferred to just bask in the glory of nature listening to the chirping of birds and the rustling of leaves. But I'm the sort of individual who feels as though if I wasn't constantly multitasking, I was wasting my time. My small slice of forest, which really wasn't all that much of a forest at all, was only a few miles from suburbia in any direction, and as a result, had no issues of threatening wildlife like bears or cougars. If we did... I had never heard nor encountered them. There may be a pack of coyotes roaming in the woods that the trail cuts through, but even if I heard them coming, I doubted I would have any chance of getting away. The earbuds stayed in on my walks. My mother's warnings of a stranger danger and to always be completely aware of your surroundings were out the window. I generally wasn't one to take risks or put myself in potentially dangerous situations but hiking in the woods was on the very edge of my comfort zone. I reasoned that as long as I stay on the trail, everything would be fine. It would be nearly impossible to get lost or injured. After a few months of my new hobby, I was on a trail that I had traversed countless times. My wireless earbuds had died and I mentally scolded myself for forgetting to charge them the night before. I decided that I would just cut my walk short for that day. As I took these silent earbuds out and made an about face, heading back where I came from, I heard something, a sound so faint that it was nearly imperceptible. After a few seconds, it came again, still distant but audible enough that if I held still and strained my ears, I could just barely make it out. It sounded like a symphony of tinkling bells, 
certainly not something that would naturally occur in the forest. I had just begun to walk away when I heard it again. There was no mistaking it. That was definitely bells. It sounded like those little Christmas sleigh bells my mom used to hang on the door around the holidays. I was mildly curious, sure, but my interest had waned and I began to walk away once more. After all, it was just a hint of bells in the woods. A cat probably got its collar caught in a bush and the wind was making the little bell ring. I had reasoned. But what stopped me for a third time was a flash of light flickering through the trees, coinciding perfectly with the peal of bells. For some reason, unbeknownst to me, I held my breath and counted. After five seconds, I saw that flash of light again, the bell sound following suit. But now the bells were louder, almost as if the source had grown closer. My curiosity overriding my sense of self-preservation. I did something that I regret to this day. I took a few steps off the trail towards the sound. I thought that if I just kept the trail in my line of sight and didn't stray too far, that I would be fine. Carefully taking a few steps into the overgrown wilderness, mincing my way through the branches and the roots, I froze, glancing around trying to spot the source of the strange noise. At first, I didn't see anything. I heard the bells now chiming in five-second intervals and thought that I saw the wind flutter leaves in front of me at the same time that the bells rang. My blood ran cold as I realized my mistake. The source of movement wasn't leaves, but something else. Four figures of what appeared to be masses of moss and lichen took a single lurching step forward every five seconds. They were vaguely human-shaped blobs of green and brown, it reminded me a bit of those ghillie suits that I had seen soldiers wear on TV, though I couldn't think of any logical scenario in which soldiers would be in the woods, wearing ghillie suits and ringing bells. I should have just walked away from the outside, gone home and taken a nice nap, but instead I remained motionless, studying these strange moss shapes. Something about the way that they were moving unsettled me on a primal level. The forest floor was covered in fallen branches and other obstacles, yet every time they moved, it looked as if they simply glided across the forest floor. Each step covered an unnatural amount of distance. They weren't very tall, and yet they moved with a curiously large stride. I shook my head, wondering if this was a heatstroke-induced hallucination. There had to be a reasonable explanation. Perhaps a strange military training exercise, or some weird kids playing dress-up, or, on the extreme, a cult doing some messed-up ritual stuff. A second sound weaved its way to my ears. In addition to the bells, there now seemed to be singing. I couldn't make out words nor tune, yet it was distinctly musical all the same. In the front of the moss figures stood yet another figure, this one, instead of various mosses, wore a simple sheet of white fabric. This time, as the moss figures simultaneously took their lunching step forward, and the bells rang once more, the white figure appeared. It twirled, like a ballerina doing a pirouette before disappearing so quickly 
I would have missed it if I had blinked. When it appeared once more and did its strange little spin, the white fabric clung slightly to the face of whatever remained beneath the fabric. The moment that I glimpsed the ghostly visage, my body was no longer my own. I froze, my jaws slack and my arms hanging limply at my sides. After five seconds, I took a step forward, doing a perfect pirouette in tandem with the white figure. My mind was in a haze. I wasn't concerned in the slightest by the lack of control over my own body. With each ring of the tinkling bells, I stepped closer to the moss figures until I had fallen in line behind them. It felt like I was experiencing everything in their person, watching myself walking and twirling every five seconds like a well-trained pet. The strange, implacable music tone rose to a crescendo, growing more urgent with every rendition. It was a beautiful song, the most beautiful thing that I had ever heard. Paired with the bells, I never wanted to hear anything else. Only a few moments had passed and I was already more than comfortable tossing away my life to fall in line with these piles of moss twirling through the woods. As I moved, I lost track of time. As the strange march continued, the forest started to change colors or more accurately, the colors became more vibrant. The greens transformed into a lime instead of the usual emerald tone of the woods. The sunlight pierced through the leaves in beams of glittering orange, iridescently shining in such breathtaking shades. If this was a dream, I was happy to remain in it forever. Soon, I started to hum along with the song, simultaneously not knowing the words and yet knowing nothing but them. I was hardly aware of my own body. My feet moved, yet I didn't feel them touch the ground. I felt nothing aside from the sun's rays caressing my face. When I did catch brief glances of my arms, I saw a flash of green winding its way up my fingertips towards my arms. Somewhere, buried in the deepest recesses of my being, a part of myself was screaming, fighting to get back in control. If I didn't get away, would I become moss like the ones that I was following behind? Is that what my fingers were turning into? It looked too bright to be moss, but I didn't want to take any chances. I needed to leave before things escalated. That aware part of myself was so small that it nearly didn't register. I didn't think that I could break out of this march. I had already succumbed to the peaceful feelings and the beauty surrounding me. There was no point in going back to normal life. That small part of myself should just accept it and be silent so I could just fall asleep. It did feel like falling asleep. Like I was wrapped in a warm pile of blankets. A cool oasis with rain pattering around me. That feeling of a perfect time to sleep. I wanted nothing more than to just let that feeling take me under. But then a thought came from the minuscule part of me still resisting. What had gotten me to come closer to start with? It wasn't the bells, not really. I could have walked away at any time until I saw that flash of white. That flash of a face under that white sheet. Suddenly, an urge stronger than just submitting myself completely seeped through. I saw a face. I couldn't remember what the face looked like. Only that I wanted to know. Needed to see it again. 
That urge was the only thing that saved me. When the next set of bells came, I willed myself to take a bigger step forward, needing to get to the front of the line, needing to overtake the blankets of moss. None seemed to notice that I was getting closer and disrupting the order of things. When I should have been one step away from bumping into one of the moving blankets of moss, I took another step with a twirl, finding myself in front of it. They didn't step aside from me. They didn't react. I didn't even remember passing them. And yet, I was in the middle of the line. My helmet was faltering and falling out of sync as I was focusing so much on taking larger steps. Fighting through the hazy, dreamlike state that overcame me, I kept going. The urge of that mystery face, my sole motivation. With each step, the colors began to flicker and warp. The beautiful forest I had seen just moments before was becoming duller, leeching back to the normal colors. Seeing that beauty fade caused such a deep ache in my chest. I nearly abandoned my quest of seeing the white figure's face. That ever-growing conscious part of me, I felt like just the smallest of glances of the white figure would be worth it. The song was fading the closer that I got to the front of the line. When I finally was in front of the last moss blanket, I only heard the normal forest sounds. It took every ounce of willpower not to twirl when I heard the bell. My body screamed in protest, my muscles crying out as if some forest was tugging at them all at once to move. But still, I stayed, waiting in agony for the white shape to appear. When it did, I was in such pain that I didn't even see the face hidden under the sheet. Knowing that I would not be able to have another chance, I reached out my hand, trying to touch the sheet before it faded. I would either faint from the pain or be forced back into the marge. My fingers touched the soft fabric the moment before our leader had faded. It broke the routine and turned its face to look at me. All the pain went away and my breath caught as I looked at the most beautiful thing I had ever seen. Beyond those colors of the forest that I saw before, beyond anything any human might have ever laid eyes on, nothing could have ever had the right to hold that much wonder and yet it was right in front of me. Colors around me rushed in, making me wonder if I was going to be a part of the march again, but that calm feeling only lasted a second. The face that was looking over me gave a shocked expression. A small intake of air was heard, then the face melted away into pure, clean water. The water dropped to the ground, the dirt absorbing it in seconds. The white sheet in my hand faded away, leaving me alone and confused in the woods. The sense of loss that was carved into my chest was so deep that it drowned out all other sensation. After a few seconds of confusion, I looked around realizing that I was not on the trail. Pain came flooding into my limbs. My legs felt like they were on fire and the soles of my feet throbbed. Sweat stung the numerous scratches covering my face. I felt like I was moments away from collapsing. I forced myself to stay awake, to try and figure out what was going on and to recall why I was so beat up. Looking around, I saw no traces of the moss figures or anything that could tell me what had happened or transpired. Felt like I had walked for days. My throat was so dry that I couldn't speak or try to call for help. Stumbling forward, 
each step a miniature battle. If I lost a single one, I wouldn't make it out of that forest. When my body finally did collapse, I was so exhausted and dehydrated I wasn't even aware that I had found the trail again. I looked like the walking dead and I felt like it too. Clothing torn from the bushes, bug bites all over and any exposed flesh was scratched. I was in a sorry state when a family found me on the trail. Without them, I may very well have not made it. I woke up in the hospital equally as confused as the police. I was missing for three days. As far as they could tell, I spent those three days just walking aimlessly in the woods. They had questioned me, seeing if I somehow got lost or walked off on purpose. I didn't have a believable answer for them, so I just lied. I told them that I went off the trail for a washroom break in the middle of the hike and didn't remember much of what had happened after. It was the best that I could come up with. I felt as if it could be the truth. What I saw could have been a dream while I was in the hospital. It did feel so very dreamlike after all. After recovering, I was very close to convincing myself that my brain just made up the moving moss blankets and that face that I so desperately wanted to see again. Weeks after the incident, I was in a bed at home, staring at the ceiling. I found it hard to sleep no matter how long I tossed and turned. I just stared up in the dark, almost as if my body was waiting for something my brain wasn't aware of. I haven't gone hiking since. I avoid any kind of wooded area. I was now terrified at just how easily I fell under the spell of whatever I came across in the woods. Real or not, I didn't want to risk it. My window was open, letting these sounds of the leaves rustling drift into my room, along with the normal sounds of the night. When I heard it, bells. I shot up in bed, straining to hear more, counting to five and gripping my blankets in anticipation over the bells that never came. Staying awake for hours, I didn't give up hearing it. I counted to five over and over again until I drifted off into sleep. The incident in the woods remained in the back of my mind as the years passed. I sometimes thought that I could hear the bells in the wind during warm summer days. Only recently have I started to hear them more clearly. My boots have been sitting by the door untouched. Every time that I hear those chimes, I find myself automatically moving towards them. I fear someday that I won't be able to stop myself, that I'll just put on my hiking boots for the last time and go back into those woods, trying to find that figure hiding such a perfect face under that white sheet. I hear the bells more often now. Who knows when that day is going to arrive. I feel as if it might be soon. The Last Camping Trip Written by Yershuis It was supposed to be a typical camping trip with my scout troop. My friends and I were so excited. Davey, Kevin, and I. We always looked forward to these camping trips. 
and the yearly autumn campout was one of the best. We took a bus to Grayson Falls, a huge state park with so many lakes to swim in, trails to hike, and several caves to explore. All of the local scout troops would be there, ten in all, and we would meet in the Starfall campground for the Jamboree. There would be canoeing and races and s'mores and, of course, the annual scary story contest. We had been crafting our stories since the last Jamboree, and this year, we were ready to take that prize. As the bus pulled up to the campsite, we all spilled out of it excitedly. We were the first to arrive, the others getting there tomorrow. But Scoutmaster Larry had wanted us to get there early to get the best spots. As I stood in the center of the campground, watching the other scouts mill about, going about their preparations, I couldn't help but soak in the sounds and smells of the surrounding forest. Grayson State Park had always been my favorite place to camp and it was chiefly because it exuded this energy of safety and adventure. It was a maintained park, the park rangers keeping the animals in check, and the forest peeled back from the areas where hikers and campers stayed at. Even so, it wasn't too hard to imagine a wolf or a bear watching from the tree line, just waiting to pounce on the unexpected. It wasn't too far-fetched to think that something mysterious or unknown could be lurking in those woods. We set up our tent a little further back than the others. Scoutmaster Larry had given us a set area where we could pitch our tents and we had set our own tents at the edge of this. We wanted to feel like real scouts, like trailblazers, and I imagined us like old-timey explorers as Kevin and I set up our tents. Davy had disappeared and I assumed he was getting water or firewood or something. No sooner had I set up my tent though, Davy hissed at us from the woods. Nice campsite, but follow me if you girls want to do some real camping, he said, motioning us into the woods. But, Kevin started, Scoutmaster Larry said, Who cares about Scoutmaster Larry and what he said? Do you want to camp or what? We looked at each other. I did feel pulled by adventure, and Kevin, despite being kind of a wet blanket, seemed to feel it too. We nodded, and Davy set out his plan. We would leave our tents here as a decoy, since they were already set up, and move off into the woods. Davy knew of a place where he had set up his tent where we could do some actual camping for the night away from the adults and the other scouts. It would be like camping on our own, being explorers and roughing it for real. But what if they look for us? Kevin asked. Davy just waves his hand at the question. We'll go back to eat and then after dinner, we'll head back to the site. We'll wake up before anybody gets good and stirring tomorrow and we'll be back in the camp before they notice anything. I had to admit it wasn't a bad plan. We would strike the camp after tonight and rejoin the jamboree tomorrow as the others arrived. No one would miss us for just one night. Not with so many other scouts around. Kevin and I agreed to go look at the campsite first. 
wanting to see where he had put it before we committed to staying the night. And so we plunged into the forest, Davy leading the way. We took no trail, our feet following new ground as he led us to the campsite. As we went, I felt as though I could feel something watching us. It was still early afternoon and the forest was alive with the sounds of nature, but this tickling on the back of my neck felt a little sinister somehow. I turned to glance around as we went, but I saw nothing more dangerous than a blue jay or a squirrel. I decided that I was being silly and caught up with Kevin and Davy as they headed for our secret campsite. Even Kevin had to admit that the campsite was pretty cool. It was set in a small clearing and complete with a fire pit that led me to believe that other scouts had used this site before. His tent almost looked out of place here and I could just imagine scouts before us sleeping under the stars in sleeping bags. Davy asked us what we thought, and I could see that both of us were sold on the idea of a rusty camp out in the woods. We both agreed to come back after dinner, and thus we returned to the group. The rest of the day went by fairly uneventfully, and we returned to find a hike about to begin. So, we tagged along as Scoutmaster Larry showed us nature's glory. We were a little nervous that they might happen upon our campsite, but the hike took us around the nearby creek and up to a natural waterfall that fed from the lake nearby. As we returned, Scout Leader Mark had our dinner cooking over a small fire near the counselor's tent. We set about preparing for the meal. And soon, we were all stretched out on the grass eating campfire stew and hardtack bread. As we ate, Scoutmaster Larry laid out the day's events for tomorrow's jamboree. It would be a whole day of canoe races, decathlons, contests, and all of it capped off by the scary story contest at the small roast. All of us were chattering quietly as we headed off to bed, the sun setting behind us as the three of us pretended to head to our tents. As the sun set low, we moved into the woods and made our way to the campground. As we followed Davy into the woods, I began to hear something strange in the surrounding green. It started as an overriding noise, making Kevin and Davy hard to hear even at close proximity. Davy was too excited to even acknowledge it at first, but I saw Kevin shooting furtive looks into the surrounding woods. The sounds of the forest seemed to be higher than I had ever heard them before, and the deeper that we went, the louder it seemed to become. The birds sounded like a flock, squawking and chattering animatedly to each other, and many of them sounded like species not native to the region. The scouts are taught to identify local birds, it's for a badge, and many of these sounded different from the finches and quail you usually heard at this time of year. I heard deer grunting and the yowls of cats, the growl of a bear, and even the throaty howl of a wolf. The strangest thing of all wasn't the sounds or the presence of non-native animals though, the strangest part was that each cry was exactly the same. 
same sound, same volume, same everything. And the others could hear it too. That much was obvious, but they were pretending that they couldn't. We could all hear the sounds of animals, all of them too loudly. Kevin was starting to cry. Davy kept insisting that once we made it to the campsite, everything would be okay. He was pulling Kevin along by now, Davy's hand wrapped around his wrist. Kevin was nearly frozen with fear, and I could see his eyes shining as he was half-drugged through the trail. When we reached the tent, we all went straight in, not daring to even start the fire that we had built up to use that night. We huddled in our tent, Kevin hyperventilating, as Davy and I peeked through the flap. The forest was still very loud, very populated, but it seemed to stop at our campsite. It was like a song heard from behind a door. You know the song, but the words are muffled. When we watched the woods, both of us agreeing that we couldn't go back. We would have to stay here tonight, and Davy said that we could sleep in shifts. There is definitely something out there. If we take turns sleeping, we can catch it if it tries to sneak up on us. I agreed, but for the moment, the two of us just watched the woods. The noises were moving away, like a troop of actors in the move, and Kevin came to join us as well. We spent an hour watching the woods, and I was unsurprised when I looked over to find Kevin snoring in the corner. The adrenaline was kicking out, and we were all getting tired. I told Davy that I was going to lie down as well, but I just couldn't get comfortable. I was so tired, but my mind wouldn't shut off. I lay there, angrily tossing for what felt like hours, and that was probably why I heard them. I had just started to doze when the first of the voices scraped across my senses. I woke up to find Davy and Kevin stirring woken up by the voices from outside of the tent. They were familiar voices, campers and scoutmasters that we knew, all of them calling our names. They were out in the woods at night searching for us, and their voices clattered through the dark wilderness in a jarring way. They were too loud somehow, disturbing the perfect silence of the nighttime forest. They also seemed wrong somehow, like the animal sounds from earlier. Each of them was the exact same name, called in the exact same way again and again. Davy opened the tent, looking out into the darkness, looking for flashlights. The forest was still dark, the crickets and the night birds alarmingly silent. The quiet of night was disturbed only by the yelling searchers and the sound of their voices making my skin crawl. Kevin seemed shaken as the voices grew closer and closer. Maybe we should just go to them guys. They're going to be mad if they find our tent out here. We can just say that we are out here using the bathroom. His voice shook as he said it and I could tell that he was getting ready to bolt. Kevin was the type of guy who feared getting in trouble more than silly things like possibly death. Davy turned away from the flap to look at him. Are you crazy? 
If we stay right here where we are, they'll never find us. Kevin, however, didn't seem so sure. As we stood at the tent flap, watching the woods and listening to the voices, Kevin made a sound like a wounded cat and made a break for the woods. He shoved past us and went running into the brush, yelling that he was sorry for making them look for him. We heard him apologizing until his yells were suddenly cut off. He was stammering apologies one minute, and the next, he was silent as a grave. Davy and I stood looking out into the woods, shuddering in the sudden silence that held sway across the dark green world. And then as suddenly as they had stopped, the voices began again. We could hear Kevin's voice amongst them, calling for us to come out. Davy, I said, both of us still looking out into the woods, my eyes having just realized something my brain should have a long time ago. If they're out here looking for us, why don't they have flashlights? Davy contemplated this and it seemed to scare him just as much as it had scared me. We went back inside, huddling in our tent as the voices grew closer and closer. Davy zipped up the doorway and walked backwards into the suddenly flimsy canvas tent. He seemed afraid to turn his back on the doorway, and he just sort of stood in the middle as he kept his eyes fixed to the secured opening. I hunkered in my sleeping bag, listening to the voices call their names as they came closer and closer. Davy shuddered, cocking his head like a dog who hears a noise. He suddenly took a step back towards the door, and I yelled at him to get away from there. I hunkered down in my own bag, hearing the voices calling our names, and my tears were wet as they slid down my face. We were trapped out here alone, with no one to help us. Why hadn't we just stayed with the others? I sunk deeper into my bag hoping that I would wake up to find out that this was just a dream and feel silly for letting it scare me. I opened my eyes as the zipper slid open. I looked out to find Davy standing in the doorway, looking out as the voices seemed to surround our tent. I begged him to close it, begged him to come back, but he only glanced back at me almost apologetically. The moon cast his face in stark relief, turning him into a carved totem, and then he turned and stepped out into the night. He left the tent open, and I heard him scream as whatever was calling to us got him. His scream was high and long, cutting through the monotonous calling like an axe through a melon. It cut off at the peak of its terror, however and the sound of its ending made me bunch down in my sleeping bag all the more. The next time that I heard his voice was when it joined that frightening chorus, all of them now calling for me. I put my hands over my ears, trying to block them out. I wanted them to stop. I wanted this all to be over, and as I sat shuddering, I suddenly became aware that I couldn't hear anything. I pulled my hands away from my ears, slowly at first, and heard nothing but the silence of the outside night. 
Then I looked to the flap of the tent and found only the soft rustle of the fabric against the zipper. As I began to warm out of the warm embrace of the sleeping bag, I got about halfway out, when suddenly, they were all around me. Their hands pushed at the walls of the tent. Their faces were canvas-covered masks as they tried to press their way inside. I could see their terrible features and hear their ragged breathing as they all shoved at the thin barrier of my tent. There were so many of them, adults, children, animals, and others, who resembled nothing so much as skeletons with vaguely human shape. A shadow fell onto the floor of my dwelling, and I looked to see one framed in the open doorway. I zipped my sleeping bag shut then and tonkered at the bottom, a snail trapped inside of its shell. Outside, I could hear the monotonous voices surrounding me again, moving in for me as I shuddered in the bottom of my sleeping bag. When I heard the metallic sound of the zipper, I knew I was done for. The creature sank its face into the mouth of the sleeping bag, and I cowered as its bony face leered at me. As it opened its mouth, it screamed my name, lunging at me with its bony teeth, its pale white skull luminescent in the darkness of the bag. I died with the sound of my own name, fighting against the rippling scream that rode up my throat. The scouts around the fire looked at me as though I was from another planet. The campfire was the only sound, the logs crackling merrily as the collected troops sat looking at me as I stood in the story circle. Even some of these scoutmasters looked a little rattled by the story, but slowly they started to clap. Scoutmaster Larry clapped the loudest, shaking his head as he approached. Now I see why you wanted to go last. That would have been a hard story to top. I think we can all agree which story wins this year's Jamboree Scary Story Contest. The applause picked up then and Davy slugged me in the arm as I sat back down. Can't believe you kept that to yourself all week. I thought Kevin was going to pee his pants. Was not, Kevin said petulantly, though he looked a little pale nonetheless. I smiled. Storytelling was something that I was good at, and it was always nice to be recognized for my talents. I let my mind slip into the woods around us hearing the call of the night birds and the whimper of the wind. Perhaps there was something like that out in the woods of the state park. Who could say what lurked in the deep pockets that surrounded area made for man? I felt myself shiver a little as the wind pushed a sound across my senses, a lonesome sound that sounded eerily like my name. My audience might not be the only ones having trouble sleeping tonight. I worked the night shift at a McDonald's drive-thru. I was given a list of rules to follow. Written by Alpha Cryptid. During the summer break of my junior year of high school, I worked as a McDonald's employee. I was 17 and pretty naive at the time. 
I desperately needed money to add to my college fund. My parents did not plan it out so well, so there was a really high chance that I wouldn't go to college if I didn't get a job. I was mostly busy during the whole day. I was a day person and wasn't very productive at night. During the daytime, I was either hanging out with friends, working out, studying, or learning or practicing for coding competitions to add to my portfolio. And usually at nighttime, I wasn't really doing anything. The most productive thing at night that I did was just some plain old written homework. Because of the reasons mentioned above, and because of the fact that I didn't really sleep a lot at night, only about 3 or 4 hours a night, I decided to take out two birds with one stone and take a night shift job. That way, I could get paid for doing absolutely zero mental work and get my homework done at the same time. I applied at a lot of different places, but I have to admit, I was a big fan of fast food. So, fast food jobs were on the top of my priority list. So, when I got the job at a McDonald's, it was a no-brainer for me. This McDonald's was located a bit on the outskirts of town, probably for travelers or passerbys, but I didn't mind it as long as I was getting paid. And with it being isolated, it also meant that there would be comparatively fewer customers than one that was located in the city. So, I might even get a chance to squeeze in another hour of sleep. I got into my dad's car and I went to the store. It looked pretty dreary. The outside walls had a bit of mold on them. I entered into the small building, only to be greeted by a middle-aged man standing behind the counter. He greeted me with a big smile and a nod of acknowledgement. He took me to the drive through booth, where I would be receiving orders, and he explained how everything worked. You know, the ice cream machines, even though they might always be broken. The soft drink dispensers and the fryers. After he had given a quick tour of the building, he brought me back to the counter, took a deep breath, and said, Hey kid, do you believe in ghosts and stuff? No, but why do you ask? I inquired. Alright, I know, I know. I'm gonna sound absolutely insane for this one. But you're gonna have to follow some rules while working here. Now, I know all of them sound unbelievable. But trust me, they are as real as it gets. They could even cost you your life if you don't follow them. I looked at him, puzzled. What are the rules? And has anyone ever been hurt or something? I said. He pulled out his phone. He had multiple photos of other people who formerly had worked there, but apparently ignored the rules and have gone missing since. 
well, why don't you just go to the police then? I asked him interrogatively. I've tried. Nobody believes me, he said, his voice getting shaky. They'll conduct a full area search, but they think I'm insane. He almost burst into tears, but he composed himself, and he begged me to follow the rules and to take them seriously. I told him that I would, and his face lit up. He handed me the list of rules, thanked me, and laughed. I reluctantly smoothed out the piece of paper, and I started to read. List of rules to survive the McDonald's night shift. Rule number one. Keep the lights on the drive through counter. That's where you'll hand customers their food. At all times. With an exception to rule number five. There is a creature just lurking nearby. Waiting for the lights to go out and for you to let your guard down. Rule number two. There are security cameras next to the counter. Always check who is in the drive-thru. If the person ordering is in a black Range Rover with tinted windows, do not speak a word to him. He will eventually stop bothering you if you ignore his angry threats and he will drive away in a few minutes. If you speak to him, however, he's going to break into your booth and go after you like a wild animal. God only knows what entity he is that can mimic a human voice so perfectly. Rule number three. If somebody orders french fries, tell them that you're all out because you do not want to open a bag of frozen fries at midnight. Trust me on that. The scent will attract unwanted attention, and it'll end well for no one. Rule number four. If you hear your name being called from behind you, stop everything that you're doing, lay down, and close your eyes. You might feel the slightest sensation of teeth on your limbs, or giant talons rubbing against your head or torso. But please, please do not move. It'll be gone after you hear a demonic giggling. Rule number five. If you see a five-year-old girl with no eyes, standing in the drive-thru looking directly at the camera, Lock all the doors and windows, and turn off all the lights. You might hear screaming, roaring, and screeching from outside. Once it's been a minute since all the sounds have ceased, turn the lights back on, and continue on with your job. Rule number six. If you hear people in the main dining area, do not go check it out. No one is out there, since the place will already be locked. It's just another distraction by the creature lurking nearby. Rule number seven. If the lights go out by themselves, chop off a toe or a finger 
and place it on the drive through counter and duck behind it. Shortly after, you'll hear low growls, followed by a quick snatching sound. Get up once the lights are back and check the counter. If your finger or toe is missing, congratulations, you're going to live to see another day. If your finger or toe is still there, just pray to God that it ends you quickly and doesn't take its time cherishing your fear. Rule number eight. It is advised that you do not sleep because then you could miss your name being called or the five-year-old girl or the laughing and talking sounds of people in the dining area which could cost you your life. I was puzzled. If this was all a joke, well then, it was a terrible one. I thought to myself, just before noticing movement in one of the bushes in the drive-thru, you know how you think you can be brave and fight through the fear during a fight-or-flight situation. Well, nope. Your body actually seizes up when facing the fear head-on without a warning. Somewhere in my heart, I believe that this had to be a fake list or an elaborate prank by the employees. But I didn't want to take any chances, so I decided to just go along with all the rules. For the first hour of the night... Literally nothing paranormal happened. I didn't even get a customer until then. Well, this is going to be easier than I thought. I sighed and spoke to myself, flipping through the security cameras every 20 minutes. I almost didn't notice the little girl peeking through a bush, her eye sockets devoid of any eyes. I looked at them, and they seemed void of any human emotion. They were evil in a strange way. The more that I looked into them, the more that I felt like I wanted to cry. I was so fixated, I couldn't tear my gaze. It felt like we locked eyes forever, and it was so long that I almost forgot to turn the lights off. But I did remember rule number five. I got underneath the counter after turning them off. Soon, I heard something slam against the left wall of the booth. Like it was something big, and it had lashed out and tried to break through the wall. Then I heard quick little footsteps, followed by the cries of a young girl. The cries kept on increasing in intensity. It got to the point where I thought that I would actually lose my hearing and go deaf. I covered my ears, but could obviously still hear the little girl's cries. After what seemed like forever but was probably only about 30 seconds, the cries ceased. And then I heard a low growl. The growl was followed by the sounds of roaring and slashing of meat. They were so disgusting, 
and I couldn't contain it anymore, and I threw up all over the floor. After collecting myself mentally, I got up and turned the lights all back on. I cleaned up the mess that I had made, and I contemplated what I had just been through. Before I even had time to finish thinking about what had happened, I heard people talking out in the main lobby. The noise was very distant. I couldn't make out any of the words or what they were saying. Just laughs, giggles, and overlapping voices. The night was eerily silent, so I could hear every little thing that went bump in the night. I was just about to go take a look and see what all the commotion was. When I remembered some of the rules regarding this specific event, I reread the list and I found it. It was rule number six. I had to just ignore it and it would eventually go away. And so that's what I did. I put in my headphones and I started with some overdue homework. Almost one hour passed. Nothing happened. When finally a customer came through the drive-thru, I served them, and I was happy that there were actually people starting to come now. Soon, I saw another car pulling up. I was really happy now. I wasn't alone in this horrible place any longer. But my good mood was immediately put off when I saw that it was a black Range Rover with tinted windows. I didn't speak to the angry man on the other side of the drive through window. He screamed his order and then said, I know you're in there. What are you, deaf? Listen to me. I didn't reply, and I kept my cool. Fifteen minutes later, and it was gone. My shift is over, and now I'm sitting here typing this, contemplating if this job is really worth $200 a day or not. I wanted to quit, but the manager begged me not to, and told me that he would double my pay since I was so good at the job. But I don't want to risk my life again. I'm a test subject in an illegal government experiment written by Trash Tia. You are depressed, Miss Satori. I am depressed, I thought. I am depressed. I am depressed. I am depressed. There are three parts to this entry. Reality, delusion, and nightmare. How can you differentiate dreams from reality? It's getting progressively harder for me to tell the difference. I just know that I'm living three different lives. Reality, delusion, and nightmare. I apologize in advance if any of this doesn't make sense. Trust me, it's hard for me to tell. I figured continuing to write to you will help me in some way. I know it won't, but it's better to lie to myself. It's better to sit here and type to you than face my apartment painted in the most beautiful shade of red I've ever seen. I know if I were still myself, I would feel something. 
I would feel scared. I would feel disgusted. I'd feel pain. I want to tell you that things are okay. I want to tell you the reality that I'm in right now is a delusion. That all those things didn't happen. But I know it's not. And I can't keep lying to myself. I can't keep lying. Because I know what is happening to me now. I know my fate. I can't run away anymore. Because they're always one step ahead of me. How can they not be? They know exactly what I'm thinking. And what I'm going to do before I do it. They know my moves before the thought comes to fruition in my mind. They're in my head. Whispering into my thoughts. I can feel them. I can feel us. Writing this makes me feel like I'm still me. Like I still have my own thoughts and my own voice. I'm going to tell you my life. Or at least the past few days through my eyes. Each day bleeds into nothing in my mind. I only remember splinters. I woke up wet. Soaking wet. Everything was wet. My sheets, comforter, and pillows. The last thing that I could remember was walking towards Starbrooks in the pouring rain. So I guess I had made some sense that I was wet. But soaked. Did something leak? A water bottle? Waking up felt strange. Like I was floating on a cloud. I don't remember opening my eyes. I don't remember sitting up. I just know that I was, my body propped up on my elbows. I was wearing the same clothes from the night before and they were glued to me, sticking to my flesh. My bed was swamped with water. When I shakily brought my hands up to wipe at my eyes, they were wet. It felt like I was underwater, drowning under pitch dark depths, swallowing me up. But I wasn't. I was in bed. I was in my apartment. Safe. My head was a cavern, but for the first time in weeks, I wasn't counting. I wasn't wrestling back control of my mind. Blinking in early morning sunlight filtering through my curtains, I noticed a figure looming over me. A figure that I swore wasn't there a second ago. My mind snapped back to silhouettes bleeding into the dark corridors. Men and women peering over me, clutching silver instruments and poking at the back of my head. A scream erupted in the back of my throat and I stiffened up. But no. When the figure laughed, I realized who it was. Cass, still in her robe, my roommate peered down at me. Hey. She didn't seem to notice my soaking bed which set off alarm bells in my head. Cass would freak out if I had chip crumbs on my carpet and wasn't batting an eyelid at my swamp of a bed. Dang, Maki, it's almost like you want to get fired. Again, she spoke through a yawn. I mean, I don't blame you. Honestly, getting fired would do you good. Her voice sounded weird, like an echo, like I had heard it before. When I didn't move, Cass grabbed a pillow and threw it to my face, dry. When I grabbed the pillow, squeezing it between my fingers, the material was dry, but I still felt something wet, something wallowing around me like I was suspended on invisible currents. 
Now that I was fully awake, I noticed the sunlight was too bright. The sky outside was the perfect shade of blue. But it looked wrong. Everything looked, felt, and sounded wrong. Maki. Cass's voice was a phantom sing-song. Hello? Are you even listening to me? I watched her dance across my carpet barefoot, grabbing the Starbucks cup off my bedside table. I looked for my name, usually scrawled in my handwriting. Something was written in black marker, but I couldn't read it. Just like the numbers I had seen on the clock at work, the word was warped and tangled, unable to register in my brain. And Cass's smile fizzled out when she noticed my expression. She juggled the cup and it flew out of her hands, and I felt the urge ignite inside me, my reflexes twitching, my body ready to leap forwards and grab for it. Okay, I get it, you're tired, you've been working all night, but you promised that we would hang out and watch that new Netflix show, she pouted, and when I come home from class you're already gone. It hurt that I couldn't remember that promise. I couldn't remember so many conversations and memories that I had had with my roommate. My mind being cruelly picked apart by Anna and Agent Carter. Those two names. I remembered. I remember Ben freaking out in the corridor, his arms tied behind his back, a bandage wrapped around his red curls. I remembered Sam snapping the rabbit's neck on command, and after seemingly snapping out of it, refusing to do the same to a little girl. I didn't see the rest of that memory. It fizzled out before I could fully grasp a hold of it. I would come walking with the three of them, who were oblivious to what was happening to us. I thought that I was going crazy. I thought I was losing my mind. Before they followed me home, Sam, he was at my door whispering into the hole in my head. And then nothing. Maki, are you okay? Opening my mouth to speak, I couldn't. The words were there, but my throat was parched. My lips felt wrong. And when I ran my hands over my sheets, they were bone dry. When I grabbed my leg and the material of my tank top, they were dry. It didn't make sense. I was soaking wet a second ago. But when I turned to Cass, she was frowning. There was that expression again. She was worried. And I had no idea what to tell her. Look, I know you've got those new friends and I'm happy for you, Maki. But it's like I don't even know you anymore. All you do is work and you come home and you pass out for like three days. And then you start questioning me. Like, how am I supposed to know that you're a borderline narcoleptic? She started pacing the room like she always did, and my eyes followed her back and forth. Something in my head, something deep, deep down was telling me that I had seen this before. Deja vu, I thought dizzily. Cass spun around to face me. Maybe it's because you've dumped your life for that job, she said. What's happening? Are they doing something to you, Maki? Cass leaned forward with a scowl. Brainwashing, she whispered. It's brainwashing, isn't it? I should have known. That's why their coffee tastes so good. There's some messed up formula. Is that what you learn? Her words were going in one ear and out the other. 
It was like she was having a conversation with herself. And you dumped me for what? Some barista job? What next? Are you planning on moving into the dang store? I had a hard time answering. Her words were supposed to hurt. They were supposed to perforate me like needles. I was supposed to feel something. Anger at her clear jealousy. That's what usually happened. She would say something that she didn't mean which came from a place of frustration. And I would get over-emotional and ignore her until I gathered the courage to talk to her. But I didn't feel anything. I didn't feel upset or mad. Cass, I managed to choke out. My voice was hoarse coming out of my mouth. She shook her head. No, I don't want an excuse this time. Her eyes were soft. You can tell me what's going on, you know, instead of bottling it up. I called your mom because I was so worried and she wants to come visit. I'm fine, I whispered. Really, uh, I'm just... Tired, she cut in. Yeah, I know. You're working crazy hours, Maki. You need a break. What time is it? I asked, my voice groggy. 8.30. Cass grabbed a pillow and threw it in the air and caught it. You're late for work, but you're not going. I don't have class today, so we're going to spend the whole day eating ice cream and binging Netflix. Yeah, I would like that, I said, running my hands through my hair. It felt damp, strands limp between my fingers. I'll join you when I get back, okay? Will you, though? Cass rolled her eyes. Oh, there's a guy at the door. I'm guessing he's from your work. Work? Something cold slipped down my spine. I knew who she meant automatically. Do you mean Sam? She shrugged. I don't know his name. I just know that he has, like, zero patience. How long has he been knocking? I don't know, maybe five minutes. And you didn't think to wake me up. I hissed out. The words felt wrong, like I had said them before. I jumped out of bed, showering quickly and brushing my teeth, throwing on a crumpled dress that I found on the floor. My movements were slow despite my quickening pace, like I wasn't really moving. Cass followed me as I hurried to grab my jacket and bag. My first thought was to, to talk to Sam. I didn't know what I was going to say to him, but I had to tell him what was going on. All of them, no matter how crazy I sounded. It didn't make any sense that only I remembered what was happening to us. Surely, they had to remember something. It would make sense that they were in denial, but for this long. If they knew something, they would have questioned when I had tugged Sam's sleeve up, searching for the numbers that I had seen printed on his skin. 626, I remembered. His subject name. When I was looking for my phone, trying to think of a way to tell Sam what was happening, Cass stepped in front of me. Please, she said. Maki, just take a day off. When she reached to grab my shoulders, my body seemed to react, my hands twitching by my sides. I knew exactly how to kill her. The thought came to me like a wave of crushing water. I knew the weak points in her neck, exactly where I would crush her windpipe. There were three knives in the kitchen, the ones that my mom gave us when we moved in. A bread knife, a carving knife, and a butcher knife. 
before I could fully register those thoughts that bubbled to the forefront of my mind, I sidestepped past her and stepped into the hallway. A splash had startled me. When I looked down, I was standing ankle-deep in water. I blinked once and then twice. Nothing happened. The water was still there. I bent down, dragging the tips of my fingers across the surface. I felt it. Real. When I straightened up, there was something all too familiar at the end of the hallway. A ball of fluffy white. A rabbit. When the rabbit turned around, its head was hung at an awkward angle, blood matting its fur. I knew exactly what had happened to it. I could still feel the warmth of its arms. A tiny head cradled on my chest. Agent Carter's command reverberating in my mind. Kill the rabbit, 234. His voice sounded close. Too close. Warm breath stinking of garlic grazing my cheeks. I squeezed it tighter to my chest. Tighter. It started to struggle. Tighter. Maki, hey, are you going to answer the door? Cass was already making her way down the hallway, wading through water. I knew she was there. I could hear her in my mind, sense her next to me. But when I blinked once, twice, and then three times, she was nowhere to be seen. There was only a shadow, a silhouette of my roommate with her bouncing ponytail, heading to the door. I stood for a moment, and it was hard to move, hard to breathe, before I forced myself to follow her. Cass couldn't see the water, I thought. She couldn't see the rabbit. I chased after her, but my movement was slow. Too slow, like I was clawing through syrup. When I stepped into the kitchen, I expected it to be flooded too. It wasn't. It looked exactly the same. Cass was back in front of me like she had never left. Her smile was bright, but I didn't trust it. I didn't trust that she wasn't complaining about me not going to work or trying to make me stay. Cass seemed to waver in and out of focus like the rabbit. Deep down, I knew why. My hands were filthy. I couldn't clean them. I couldn't get her off of them. She was everywhere. All over my apartment in the most mesmerizing shade of red. I glimpsed it, splashed all over the floor, the table, the countertop. Where I had grabbed my roommate's head and slammed it into the counter, until her body was limp. Until she was a mess of unrecognizable, distorted, beautiful red at my feet. I'll see you when you get back, okay? Yes, I wanted to say. Yes, I'll come home, and we can watch movies. I'll quit my job, I promise. I was counting when I left her. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. 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 I was counting when the voice in my head asked if I felt anything when I ripped her apart. If I felt regret. Pain. He told me to enjoy the pretty shades of red. And I did. You are depressed, Miss Satori, a voice echoed. It was so close. Too close. I am depressed, I thought dizzily. I am depressed. 
I am depressed. Her chuckle brought me back to reality. A reality that I was trying to ignore. A reality that I had already been through, but I was hiding away from it, forcing it to the back of my mind. When I opened my eyes, I was staring up at the pretty blue tiles Cass had bought for our bathroom. The tub was full and overflowing, and I couldn't move. I was numb, my arms hanging limply over the edge. The water was lukewarm and my body was trembling, something red diffusing the current lapping around my legs. If I concentrated, I could feel what had been done to me. The hole in my head I was forced to ignore. I knew that it was there. In that current state, I couldn't feel it. I couldn't feel anything. I couldn't feel the breeze from the open window grazing my cheeks, or the stinging sensation in both of my arms and legs. There was nothing. I was aware of someone looming over me. I already knew who it was. I have children of my own, Anna or Agent Taryn said softly. I didn't want to look at her. I didn't want to look at what she was doing. Simon, he's 15, and my youngest, Arabella. She just started first grade. I noticed Anna's fingers were already a slick red, like the fingerprints on smooth porcelain, the ones that were supposed to be mine. They're a reminder, Anna said, that this... She held something that glinted in a light. This is worth it. I wanted to speak, to ask her why I couldn't feel, why it was so hard to think, to think straight. But my lips were numb. I couldn't speak. And if I tried to, something else was there. Words that weren't mine. Words that I had to share. When Anna moved, her face swam into view. She was smiling, but her eyes were hard, merciless. Miss Satori, I know what you're thinking. She placed a small bottle on the edge of the tub. What's the difference between my children and you? Kneeling on the floor, she stroked her fingers through tangles of my wet hair. You are barely an adult yourself, as much as I try to deny it. But Simon and Arabella, they are important if you can understand that. And not just to me. They are a valuable part of our country. They mean something to this world. They are both going to grow up and will follow in my footsteps. Her laugh was light. Maybe they'll be greater than me. I just know that my children will make sure their generation and the ones after are safe and looked after. Her fingers tightened in my hair, grasping a hold of my scalp. Well, as for you and the others, forgive me for saying this, because what I'm saying comes professionally. I am a mother and I would never dream of doing this to a child. However, you, as well as the other subjects, are what we call expendable. To put in these simplest of terms, you four are not actively doing anything with your lives. No, I thought weakly. I was. I was going to be. I was going to. The thought was tangled in my mind. I had been going to college for three years, but 
but what for? As if she was reading my thoughts, Anna sighed, playing with my hair. If it weren't for the White Rabbit program, I can assure you, the four of you would still be drowning in your mundane lives. You were students. You were planning on getting your diploma and getting a job. Her laugh was harsh, cutting into me. Except no. Anna pulled at my hair. Students are lazy. College is just another excuse for them to hide away from adulthood for the next five years. And that, Miss Satori, is exactly what the four of you were doing. Am I right or am I wrong? I couldn't speak for the others, but she was right about me. I had no plans after college. I had no idea what to do with my diploma, and I had barely any job experience. Maki Satori, Anna said. You come from a poor background. Your parents struggle financially. Your father left when you were 13. And since then, your mother has been using you as a coping mechanism. A replacement. Her words struck me, but again, I felt nothing. No pain, anger, rage. It felt wrong. So wrong that she knew such intimate details of my life in vivid detail. Samuel Quinn. She continued in a low hum. Sam was running from the dead his late parents had left him. I didn't want her to continue. I didn't want to know the other's lives. But still, she continued. Like it thrilled her to torture me. Ben Marriott dealt drugs to college kids to help pay for his little sister's medical bills, as well as his own tuition. And Luna Reyes. Well, let's just say she wasn't quite the perfect girl you saw at first glance. Their names sounded strange coming from her mouth, without using their subject names. They were real people with real lives, and I only knew them from splintered pieces of my memory, pieces that I weren't even sure were real. And that's on top of being students, Anna chuckled. You were perfect. I felt a slight prick. A tingle in my wrist when she ran her fingers down my arm. I saw the red. I saw that pooling on pristine white, diffusing the water. Nobody will miss you, she said. Sam's parents were killed in a car crash in 2019. Ben's mother returned to the UK without him, and his father OD'd just several months ago now. As for Luna, her mother and father have turned their back on her. She was what they called a problem daughter. No, I thought dizzily. That wasn't right. Luna had a mother that cared about her. That's what she had told me. Right? Compared to my children, to children who mean something, you meant nothing, she hummed. Nobody will look for you. Any of you. Even your mother, who I know wishes you were never born. I knew what this tactic was. Anna was trying to put words in my mouth, ugly thoughts into my head. And yet even then, I was replaying how happy my mom had been when I would revealed that I would be going to college across the country. Won't it be too far? I had asked, and she had shook her head and hugged me, squeezing me to her chest. I wanted my mom at that moment. I wanted to hug her again. I wanted her to tell me I wasn't a burden, that I meant something to her. Dad didn't leave because of me. I knew he didn't. But Anna made me second-guess myself. 
You see me as selfish. Anna's tone hardened, and I can understand that. I am selfish. We are selfish. What we do to people to make sure our future is bright, and our children can continue to live peaceful and happy lives, it is very selfish. When I risked a glance at her, there was a sad smile on her face. If we don't take these risks, then we open ourselves up to threats that come every day. Threats that are destroyed before they become public knowledge. You've grown up protected in Miss All four of you because of us. Because of these risks that we have made. And yes, that includes using people to our advantage. People we see that are not living constructive lives. And aside, like she wanted me to argue. And I wanted to. I wanted to wrap my hands around her neck and squeeze her until her eyes were bugging out of her head. And I knew how. I knew how I would kill her. Just like I had killed Cass. Under the order from Agent Carter. My hands had twitched by my sides. My finger lapping the water. I owe you an apology. Her voice cracked. Project White Rabbit was supposed to be a revival experiment where our main goal was to find and recruit agents through tactics mirroring those of her predecessors. Her voice was calm, her words bleeding into me. Believe it or not, this is the first time since the 60s that we have subjected potential agents to mind control methods. You of course know of one of our first attempts, one of humanity's greatest breakthroughs. And I guess our biggest failure because it didn't truly come to fruition, did it? Anna hummed. It was killed before we even had the chance to perfect it. I knew what she meant, or at least the one in public knowledge. I remembered being 15 and first being introduced to it by my school friend. I couldn't remember how we had gotten onto the subject, but the whole thing had fascinated me. Project Blue, Anna said. Finally, we were able to control the thought process. The techniques were inhumane, yes, but we were getting somewhere. Interrogation was a thing of the past. And yet we were shunned by our superiors. The project shut down. Because of minuscule things such as mortality and empathy. She scoffed. We won't need mortality and empathy when we're attacked. We need what makes us human in the first place. We need our basic survival instincts, and what has been taken from us since we began. That insatiable need to kill before we are picked off first by the one stronger than us. What we're born with. Anna kept talking. I wondered if this was her way of justifying what she was doing. As she spoke, Anna continued to play with tiny bottles, pouring them onto the side of the tub. She counted each one with an exaggerated slowness. Miss Satori, let me explain it the best way that I can. Ever since our species began, we have taken what we wanted by killing. We have killed to eat, to survive, to have shelter. That is how we adapted. She gritted out. There was no need for mortality. We didn't care what we did as long as we survived, right? Now... Humanity is sick, plagued with emotions that do not help us. They only hold us back. They make us think before acting, when we should just act. When we are given an order, there is no need to think about it, whether it will cause hurt. 
she cleared her throat. There is a famous saying, Miss Satori. Anna dipped her fingers in the water before, dragging an edge across my palm. I didn't feel anything. My body did, spasming under her touch. But I didn't feel, I didn't think, I didn't breathe. It's French, she continued. Lape du vide. The call of the void. You proudly experienced it. Of course you have. You're standing on the edge of the road. There's a woman standing close to you. And just for a moment, you get that craving. An irresistible urge to push her into the path of a car. Anna withdrew her hand. Of course, we never do it. Something stops us. Something deeply rooted inside our head tells us to stop. There's a barrier inside our head that stops us from doing things like that. It makes us think. It makes us think of consequences. My gaze found her fingernails stroking up and down my arm. And that, that was White Rabbit. That is what we centered the project around. Not only manipulation of the thought process, but also to cut out that alarm. That voice in your head that tells you to stop. The moral barrier that stops you from acting on impulse. Sensing movement, my eyes followed Anna as she stood up, folding her arms across her chest. Because what use is taking control of the mind when it's still weighed down by all those emotions? Pain, guilt, anger, regret. If we were able to take all those away, we wouldn't just have a soldier, an agent. We would have someone ripped of their humanity, the humanity that plagues the planet, and brought back to default, back to what we were. Slowly, Anna sat back, that, Miss Satori, that is why I owe you an apology. This time, we went too far. Silence. Only the drip, drip, drip of the tab, which made me think of burning, scolding, spluttering, and screaming. The relentless pain that I had gone through to make me count down, to force the numbers through my lips. We knew that it was a risk, but we were prepared to take it, for the good of our country and its children, our future. We would take ordinary people your age, as long as they were expendable, and subject them to the exact same technique we used in earlier projects. However, phase one was when we would lose them. The training video. You four were the first ones who submitted. Anna let out a breath. You attracted the higher-ups, and protocol GM-46 was brought in. I won't go into detail, but even we have humanity left. What I wanted was to create agents. It is my job. GM-46, which we attempted to destroy in the late 80s, was a sister experiment to its predecessor. A copycat created by a deranged mind who wanted to go one step further and its objective was to make monsters. My mind snapped back to one of my splintered memories. I was back in the classroom, sitting in front of a TV full of static. There was a voice in my head, and I was counting. But the closer I got, when we got, the room started to tremble. The dust shook. Something warm ran from my nose and dripped from my chin. There was a voice in my head, screeching, leeching into my mind.
It was growing louder and louder and my body was shaking, contorting. My vision was blurring. I couldn't breathe. A bulb exploded above me, showering the room in glass. Stop! Anna's phantom shriek rattled in my mind. Turn it off! Her gaze found mine. Yes, I mean monsters. Humans turn bees. We have made them in the past, and I stand by what I say. It's one of our greatest mistakes to date. These beings have been locked far away. I don't even know what would happen if they would get out. The threat they pose to our planet is catastrophic. Bees. Her words didn't make sense in my mind. Monsters. Is that what I was? What I was becoming? They come from a place of paranoia. We wanted to create something bigger than us. A being that if let loose to an enemy would wipe them out. Anna's voice shook slightly. And as you can imagine, that is what my superiors wanted to do to you. She caught herself. I mean done to you. Anna curled her lip. Now, I'm sure you can remember through the memory planks that we've implemented. These experiments weren't humane. But they were successful. As I said, you four are our first successes in years. In our eyes, you're a miracle. And that, that only pushed them to attempt GM-46. Anna's fingers traced my palms. I fought for it. I told them to let you go. I could detect emotion in her voice. I swear to you, Miss Satori. I told them to stop. However, they insisted that you were put through the old protocol. We had attempted to destroy it when we had created those things. However, the protocol was salvaged, and you were subjected to it. Now, the memory blanks we've implemented were only temporary to make sure that you stayed stable. I know you remember what we did to you, Miss Satori, and I apologize for that. GM46 did some terrible things to you. Cursing you with abilities a human cannot and will not be able to harbor. Anna grabbed for my wrist, and this time it was almost a motherly touch, her fingers wrapping around mine. There is nothing I can do. The process has already begun, and it's my responsibility to ensure that you four do not pose a threat to our country. That you are neutralized before my superiors can cause any more damage. You don't deserve to be put with them. You still have your humanity, but not for long. Not if they have their way. Individually, you are bad enough. But together, you could wipe us out. Her lips grazed my ear and I felt them. If I don't stop this now, Miss Satori, they're going to turn you four into one of them. The beasts that they hide away. The ones they pretend don't exist until a threat requires their use. So, she pushed her head lower until I could taste the water seeping through my lips. You're going to go to sleep. Anna let out a soft sigh. You're depressed, Maki. You've been holding it in for so long, but you can't deal with it anymore. Your roommate left you. Your mother doesn't care. You're tired. You're tired of living the same day over and over again. There's no change. There's no light at the end of the tunnel. 
You're drifting towards. Anna's fingers gently caressed my scalp before gripping a handful and giving a violent tug. Something ignited inside me, an urge to jump up, my hands itching, twitching in the water. I would wrap my hands around her neck and snap it in two. I would plunge my fingers into her eyes and pluck them from her skull. Darkness. Anna finished. Doesn't that sound terrible? Who in their right mind would want that? You're heading towards a life that will only despise and wish and wish and wish that you had taken the option years ago. The one that I'm offering you now. The lights above me illuminated the scene perfectly. The story Anna had laid out. Lower. I was slipping into the water, and my body refused to fight back. Anna pushed me deeper, her voice breaking, and I half wondered if she regretted it. You are becoming a singular being, bound by thought and soon flesh. If I don't stop this now, they'll take the last of your humanity with no mercy. They don't care. They don't care who they hurt, as long as they get a result. Her voice wobbled and wavered when I sunk under the surface. All I need to do is cut off a head and the four of you will no longer be a threat. I hope you can forgive me. I'm sure one day I will think of all of you. She didn't need to hold me underwater. I was stiff, my body a puppet cut from its strings. Now, come back from ten for me. Her voice was soft, and my mind reacted. My lips were moving, gurgling water. It was pathetic how I obeyed her despite my mouth filling with water, my lungs bursting, chest aching. Ten. The countdown was slow. Anna's voice was in my head. I was still counting her footsteps padding away. I was slipping further and further into the water, and the numbers were still on my lips. Nine. Anna shut the door behind her. Eight. I sat into the water. On seven, my mind whirred, the sound of the drip, 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 coming from the tab, fading into murmured voices. I was no longer in a bathtub of water, instead lying down, Velcro pinning my wrist. The room was dark. There was something in my head, always, always sticking into the back of my skull. When I moved my head to try and glimpse something, there was only the dark. When I opened my mouth to cry out, I couldn't. There was something soft wrapped around my neck and I had a sudden recollection of gloved fingers wrapped around a scalpel inching towards the curve of my throat, and then the icy prick of a felt-tip marker making an incision point. There is a man in pale blue talking to someone I couldn't see, and he was pointing at my throat. Chords. I remember him saying, his voice slipping in and out of my mind, choked with fog. So we'll make... Still need a voice. Merge. Crap. A familiar voice rang out in my head, crackling to life. Wrong, I thought. It was wrong. But it was real. I'd heard it perfectly. 
but the room was empty. His voice was slurred, a low mumble vibrating in my skull. My head hurts, he whispered. It really, really hurts, man. Come on, so much pain. I just, I just wanted to stop. Sam, it was Sam. When I lifted my head to scan the room, though, I was alone. The room looked to be an operating theater, though I had been left on the metal slab like meat to the slaughter. Oh, God. Sam's voice broke into a sharp cry. I'm here again. I'm here again. This isn't real. This isn't real. I'm going crazy. You're not crazy, I thought. If this was my only way to tell him, then so be it. Maki? Sam, listen to me. This is real. Well, then, then I'm in a nightmare. They're doing something to me, to my, to my head. He felt so close. His panicked breast exploding to my skull kept me anchored. This place, where are we? I glimpsed a white rabbit by the door. When it turned to me, its eyes had been plucked out. Wonderland, I thought. Thinking of the door as I flew past, tied down in a bed of metal. The inhuman noises that came from each one. Sam laughed at that. He laughed until static took over. And his laughter turned into screams that rattled my head. When I couldn't block them out, a deluge of Sam and Luna and Ben screeching inside my skull. I fell for a while. I'm not sure for how long, but I fell until a bright light pricked into harrowing clarity. I was standing in another room. Not the classroom, this one was bigger. I was numb. Numb despite the hole in my head and my bloodied feet on pristine white. Sam, Ben, and Luna were next to me. We stood over something, entangled limbs and torsos with no heads. It didn't faze me. It should have, seeing what was in front of me, it should have done something to me. But it didn't. Something dropped from my hands, half of a disfigured head, blonde ringlets stained red. There was a noise ringing in my head, a symphonic screeching sound. There was static in my skull and my body was tremoring along with the walls, the floors, and the ceiling. There was something newly weaved inside my head. It felt like a physical presence. Stop! Anna soft hiss. Stop! Her command struck me and I closed my mouth. That I didn't know was open. That noise, that monster screech ringing in my head. Was that us? Next to me, the others did the same. When I looked for a spark of awareness on Sam's face, there was nothing. I told you. A voice. Agent Carter. GM-46 is successful. The merge is not yet finalized, though we are close. You've lost your mind. Anna's voice inching on hysteria. The purpose of White Rabbit was to create brand new agents. Subject 564. Agent Carter's gaze landed on Ben. Kill the guard behind you. Ben reacted automatically twisting around. I saw only a flash, but it was enough to see the man being torn apart limb by limb. His head first twisted off like a bottle cap, then his arms pulled off like doll pieces. 
and then the remnants of what used to be the guard dropped to the ground with a soft thump. Anna let out a shriek. The guard looked smug, turning to Ben. 626. Once again, the child. A little girl was brought in. There was no pause this time. Sam strode towards her, and all I saw was a sharp blur of red. My brain blocked it out. Carter cleared his throat. I believe what you attempted and failed at, Agent Terran. We have managed it on our first try. Say what you want, Terran. This serum is working perfectly. 6.52 Carter nodded to Luna, who didn't look like Luna anymore. She looked like a poor imitation of the girl. The other guard. Rip his head off. Luna responded just like the boys. I only heard what sounded like a sharp cry and the sound of ripping flesh. What have you done? Anna whispered. This, this wasn't our goal. What we have done is taken a risk which proved successful, Carter said. I have clearance to begin the penultimate phase in the coming weeks. And as you know, the first stage of amalgamation is complete. Think about what you're doing. Anna stepped in front of him. The protocol is dangerous. There's a reason why we tried to destroy it. Taryn, you're letting your emotions get the better of you. Carter grunted. I'll be taking over this project. I knew it. Her voice was sour. You're greedy, Carter. The aim was to create sleepers, which we've succeeded. Get her out of here, Carter said. You're sick, Anna spat. When she was grabbed by two guards and dragged out, her cry rang out. Don't do this. You haven't even gotten clearance. Thank you for your service, Terran. What about when it goes wrong? Are you going to be the one to blame when they slaughter innocent civilians? You know where they belong. Six feet under where you put all the other failures. They're dangerous. I was falling again. Always falling. Anna's voice faded out when something yanked at me. I was pulled from my own mind and back into reality. A bathtub. Reality. Not delusion or nightmare. The reality that I'm stuck in. The one that I can't escape. There were hands grasping onto me, pulling me out of the tub. I don't remember taking a breath. I don't think that I needed to. When I hit the ground, three faces blurred into view. Luna, Sam, and Ben. Found you. Sam's voice was a drone. When he smiled, I felt my lips stretch into a grin that matched his. Ben nodded. His smile was the same. Agent Terran has been neutralized. Sam held a phone and slowly reached out, pressing it to my ear. Agent Terran has been taken care of. She can't be trusted. The man, Carter's voice, crawled into my skull. She will no longer be a problem. Now, come back from ten for me and clean up the mess downstairs. Mess. He met my roommate. The rest of his words were drowned out by my countdown. Ten. Nine. Eight. Seven. 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 Another ten hours. I don't think that I'm me anymore. I think I'm them and they are me. 
With their every movement, my own body moves with them, twitching and contorting as they come closer. I can't scream. They have my voice, and I have theirs. Three different tongues, accents, voices suffocating my mouth. They're so close. I can sense them. I can hear their thoughts before they come to fruition. Their words are already in my mouth, clawing for a way out. It's always the same thought. That countdown. I hear it bouncing between four minds. Every number that slips into my mind, I lose myself. I've stopped thinking for seconds, minutes, sometimes hours. While my body bleeds and they continue to drill inside my head. Picking apart what I am desperately trying to cling on to. My voice, my thoughts. I'm trying to hold on to myself. And they're taking it away. They're taking me away. And my body will continue. My limbs puppeteered by a deep parasite in my brain. The voice whispering into my head. The colors are beautiful, 234. You like the color red. You don't feel anything for your roommate, do you? No, of course not. She was a distraction. 10, 9, 8, 7, 7, 7. I'm counting. Always counting. I have an idea, though, I'm sure. They already know of it. That's why they're here. Anna tried to kill me. To kill all four of us. I just need to do what she failed. I need to cut off a head. Our vacation got turned into a hunting trip. Where we were the ones being hunted. Written by that really short chick. My girlfriend has been so excited about this trip for months. She hadn't seen her grandpa in over six months and she had missed him a lot. This is why we packed our bags and headed out to his house, which was situated in the middle of nowhere. That kind of sucked, but she promised me the beautiful sights were worth the long drive. I was beginning to second guess taking this long drive as our car struggled over the bumpy dirt road full of potholes. The blacktop having left us a while before. My girlfriend's huge grin as she sang along to the radio is what really made up for it. I hadn't seen her this happy in a while, and it improved my mood as well. Are you watching the maps? I asked her with a smile on my face. What? She asked as she had turned the volume dial down. Are you watching the maps? I repeated. Oh, she glanced down at her phone, switching from your music app to the maps. Yeah, the next turn is in, um, a mile. I nodded and pressed the volume up button on my steering wheel, watching her begin to dance again. Turn right, rang out on the phone, and I slowed down to maneuver the car around the huge pothole that greeted us upon our right turn. I had to admit that the green trees upon the bright sky were pretty, and the sunlight shining through only added to the effect. The roads were kind of crappy, but they were crappy in an it-might-not-be-the-best-but-it's-home kind of way. That combined with the random animals peeking out of the trees at us, and running across as we drove by, 
had me daydreaming about buying a house in the country someday, once I put a ring on her finger. The more we drove, the lower the sun dropped into the sky, making everything around us appear in a red hue. The tree began to canopy us, shading the little bit of light that we still had, but you could still see dots of red between the branches and leaves. I peeked over to my girlfriend, wondering why she had gone quiet, only to realize that she was asleep. Smiling at her, I reached over to brush her hair out of her face. By the time that I looked back at the road, I realized I could see something in the distance. As I drove closer, I began to get a little nervous. So far, the only thing I could tell was it, it was hanging by a tree, whatever it was. And the closer I got, the more it started to appear, strangely, like a human. I tried to convince myself that it was only a mannequin or something that some teenagers had hung up as a prank. But the closer I got, the more I started to doubt that idea. It looked too real. So real that I stopped my car just before it so I could take a look. There was no room to drive around it on the tiny road. So I didn't have any other option besides stopping, really. Due to my nervousness... I accidentally braked too hard and woke my girlfriend up from her nap. She glared up at the thing hanging from the tree, just as confused as I was. What is that thing? She mumbled. I don't know, I said. I'm about to find out though. I placed my hand on the door handle and was about to open it whenever she yelled. Stop! Are you crazy? Someone could be in the woods waiting. It's probably just some prank some dumb kids pulled, I reasoned. I have never heard of a prank like this happening in all my life growing up in this community, she countered. And that thing looks way too real to be a prank. She glanced back at it, a look of disgust on her face. And then she began to squint at it. It has the number 30 carved into it, she said. I looked at it, squinting as well, but I couldn't see it. Where? In, in its torso, she replied. I scoffed at that response. Torso? Well, what else am I supposed to describe it as? She asked. It looks human. It looks like a damaged, a doll thing that someone hung up to mess with people. I replied. Well, then why does it look so real? She asked. You can literally see some of its ribcage. She pointed and then began to rub her arms like she had gotten chills. I don't care what it is, Jeremy. It's giving me the creeps. Let's just go. I glanced back at it, really looking at it. She was right. You could see its ribcage and even through it. Whatever it was, it looked incredibly realistic. I had never seen a doll or anything like it unless you can count scary movies. This reached a whole new level of horror, though, with its appearance of exposed bones and rotting flesh. No eyeballs or lips were in its head, as sprigs of random hair shot out of its scalp like bolts of lightning, which the bits of red sky peeking through did not make me feel any better about. The way that its head hung loosely against the rope seemed all too close to how an actual neck would hang when broken and the 30 carved into the remainder of its torso seemed ominous. 
like maybe it wasn't a prank, and maybe it really meant something. I whipped out my phone to take a picture of it, and she immediately started complaining. Shushing her, I took a few quick pictures. Jeremy, let's go, she yelled. We are, I said. Just let me get a few quick pictures. I don't think anyone would believe us even if we both told them about it. As I zoomed in to take some pictures of the face, I jerked back as I saw the head tilt slightly, and then it tilted some more, and some more until it was looking at me. Jeremy, said my girlfriend, suddenly gripping tightly onto my arm. I whipped the car into reverse as the thing screeched an unholy and inhuman sound at the sky, violently tugging at the rope around its neck. Our car bumped over puddles, making us both repeatedly bounce out of our seats with the force. I got lucky enough to just barely not slam into a tree whenever I turned the car to the right, quickly swapping into drive and stomping on the gas. The thing continued to screech, and I heard a loud thwack as it finally broke free from the rope and flung it against the tree. We quickly reached 50 miles per hour, zooming over the puddles and giving us an involuntary and unpleasant full-body pummeling. I looked into the rearview mirror, and gasped as I saw the thing was sprinting at us on all fours, moving very rapidly. I had the gas pedal almost all the way to the floor, my knuckles gripping the steering wheel so tight that they were turning white. I knew that I was nervous, but my anxiety was turning into adrenaline. My girlfriend, on the other hand, was near hyperventilating in the passenger seat. The GPS was completely losing it with us going in the opposite direction, repeatedly telling us to turn around. It only grew more urgent whenever I started whipping down random roads, trying to lose the thing behind us. At some point, the thing would seem to glide through the trees, quickly breaking through the wooded area and falling right behind our car once again. Screeches still rang through the air as the potholes rattled the car. It seemed like we would never get away from it. Driving for over an hour and becoming low on gas, the sun having been gone down for a while. That is, until headlights appeared, cutting through the darkness. Gunshots rang through the air as whoever was in the car shot at the bean. I stopped my car, afraid that it would hit it, but it stopped a few feet in front, blinding us with their headlights. The bean screeched again, this time one full of pain, deciding to retreat away into the trees just as it had reached our car. We both breathed a sigh of relief, but neither of us relaxed just yet. I peered around our two vehicles, trying to see where the thing had gone, but it was no use. As the driver approached the car, my girlfriend yelled, Grandpa! She quickly hopped out of the car, ran towards him and hugged him. I got out as well, still nervous about the being, but also slightly nervous about meeting her grandpa for the first time, even though it was nothing compared to whatever had happened. He led us back to his house and filled up the tank with a gas jug back at his place. Our car was practically on fumes whenever we made it, so I'm sure the gas was a nice welcoming beverage for it. As for us, he made us three cups of tea whenever we made it inside, 
sending them in front of us at the dining room table before sitting down himself. Grandpa, said my girlfriend as she stared down into her tea, as if it could give us answers. What was that thing? I had been jittery ever since the event, my knee jiggling under the table and periodically knocking on the leg of it. Yeah, I've got some pictures of it in case you want to see them. I don't need to see them. He sighed after taking a sip from his mug. We've been dealing with those things for years, so I know what they are. We waited for him to explain as he nervously traced the pattern on the tablecloth, looking for the right words. They started appearing after the incident with Ellie Mae, he started. There had been rumors of this god-awful group of people who were taking girls. He trailed off, tears in his eyes as he struggled to finish. Ellie Mae, Michael Gordon's wife, was one of the girls who were taken. There was never any real proof, but Michael knew. We all knew, really, but we didn't think it would do any good to tell the police. Five other women had gone missing, and they had done nothing. What were they doing to the girls? I asked as I drummed my fingers against the tea mug, too worked up to even take a sip. What evil humans do to innocent victims? He stated, matter-of-factly. They basically did horrible things to them in any way they could think of before dumping their bodies in the lake. They were practically unrecognizable whenever they were found, all mangled and bloated. Michael became unhinged whenever they found Ellie, cursed to the heavens and that he would take all those sons of a guns out himself. I glanced at my girlfriend and realized that she was crying, so I forced my hand to stop shaking so that I could unwrap one of hers from her coffee mug to hold it. And did he? I asked. He was probably angry enough too, but some others who were just as angry helped him out. And then the bodies started appearing, always hanging from the trees. That made the taking stop since they were scared that they were being hunted. He chuckled at that comment, staring off towards the back of the kitchen as he continued to talk. They were scared of being hunted, as if they weren't the ones to start this whole thing. Why was 30 carved into it? Asked my girlfriend. There were 30 of them in the group, he explained, and they killed all 30 of them. He took another sip of his tea before continuing, still staring off into the distance. And now that they're all dead, they've started hunting again. That's why they were chasing your car. My girlfriend started shaking at this revelation, and I could no longer contain my tremors either. Thinking back to how fast that thing was moving, we were lucky that her grandpa showed up when he did. If they could move that fast, there's no telling how strong they are. I hate that you guys had to find all this out just as you got here, but I haven't had time to tell you anything, he started. They didn't start hunting again until yesterday when the last one died, and eight other girls have already gone missing. He reached behind his chair and grabbed something leaning against the wall. I didn't realize that it was a shotgun until he set it down on the table. 
They were coming after your car because they are hunting her, he said while looking me in the eye. And we have to protect her. The past few days have not been pleasant in the slightest. There's a lot of time to play board games whenever your power is off, cell phone towers are down, and that you're stuck in the house for days on end. It was difficult due to having to be quiet and using candlelight during nights, but it was better than just sitting there doing nothing. I won probably 10 games of Monopoly, 6 of Uno, and 3 of Phase 10. But who knew the fear of dying at any moment could make your love for board games more powerful? It also made me realize how much I truly loved my girlfriend, and I was glad my possible last moments would be with her of all people. The main thing that it was hard to do was to eat. It was difficult to cook things and not make a lot of noise, so we often just ate junk food. I don't think that I'll ever be able to eat a Pop-Tart or a honey bun ever again, simply just from being tired of them but also to avoid memories of this time. Heck, the board games will probably never bring me happy memories after these events either, but at least they created some happiness while they could. Other than board games and junk food, we mostly sat by the fire. Her grandpa thought of the idea for us to have notepads to write things for conversation. We would spend hours uh, just chit-chatting and doodling on those little notepads. My girlfriend attempted to draw a donkey that was so dumb-looking that we almost busted out laughing over it. We started crying due to trying to stifle the laughter. I now have that dumb donkey doodle folded and placed in a fold in my wallet, and that is where it will always stay. The good didn't last long, no matter how much I hoped it would. So, let me get into the parts that I know you guys really care about. We decided our best option would be to hide in the house, barricade all doors and board up all windows, block any exits or anything that could be forcibly made into an exit. All of us had guns. Grandpa and I had shotguns while my girlfriend carried a pistol. We usually stayed in the same room together, especially whenever we heard sounds outside. And besides, Gramps and I had taken turns to go around the house and check that none of the exits were infiltrated. There were a few times that we heard them trying to get in, bashing themselves against the door so hard that I thought they would come off the hinges. One night, they had smashed all the windows, leaving only the wooden boards, and they slammed themselves against those too, and their blood seeped through the tiny cracks between the boards as the remaining glass shards cut them upon impact. It wasn't long before we had to nail more boards, and it was while doing this that everything started going to hell. It had been a while since we had heard any activity outside, so we thought that it was safe. We had been listening for hours after all and thought that they had moved on in search of another woman. I was helping Gramps out by nailing the boards as he held them whenever we heard a scuffling sound outside. We both immediately froze, afraid to make any noise as if it was one of them. We sat there for what felt like ten minutes as we heard something move around outside. Whenever my arms began to burn... By the time ten more minutes had passed, the muscles in my arms were burning like a forest fire, 
And I knew that Grams was struggling as well because I could see that his arms were shaking. He slightly moved, and my girlfriend and I immediately stared daggers at him. I felt bad afterward though because I knew that he was struggling harder than he was letting on. We watched as he carefully moved, trying to remain as silent as he possibly could. He held up a hand to his lips and made a shushy motion before holding up three fingers. I nodded, understanding that he meant to let go on the count of three. I could tell the bean hadn't heard anything because it was still shuffling around outside. I waited until he gently placed his hands back in the board that we had been nailing in and looked at me. I readied myself as he began to nod, and on the third nod, we both softly removed the board from the wall and backed up. There were three boards still remaining on the door, definitely enough to reinforce it against only one of the beans. I noticed the nails a second too late, but it wasn't like that there was anything I could do to stop them. They were unscrewing themselves one by one and dropping to the floor. Our main source of protection was dropping like dead flies, and we all stood there in fear and watched as it happened. We felt powerless to do anything else. It was silent after the last nail that dropped, and the ring of the nail bound in on the floor echoed through the room. And then all hell broke loose, as a fist slammed through one of the boards so powerfully that it shot towards the wall opposite the door before it clattered into the floor. A perfect rectangular indentation of a 2x4 was now there from the impact. Before we could even fully react, more were shooting towards the wall. One accidentally smacked my girlfriend in the arm and sliced it open. The next thing we know, Graham starts blasting a shotgun as the bodies try to enter the house, wailing and screeching at top volume. I start shooting as well, and I yell to my girlfriend to go find a place to hide. One of the beings leapt over the five others that were blocking the doorway, climbing over their outreached and decaying hands. He managed to grab a hold of the front of Grandpa's shirt, tugging on it so hard that it ripped. The beings began to scream even louder as they realized their buddy had clawed Grandpa pretty deep. Red flowed down his chest as we both continued to shoot. But we were slowly running out of ammo though, and I knew that we would have to retreat to go find more eventually. Grandpa's chest was gushing by this point and I knew that he would have to rest too. But right as I thought this, he collapsed to the ground with a grunt. I kept shooting, managing to take three down just with headshots. I allowed myself only a moment of pride before I ran to Gramps. I could hear some more in the distance, but for right now, we were alone. You've got to get to her, he said. Leave me, I'll be fine. She would never forgive me if I leave you, I said. Well, at least she would still be alive. I debated arguing some more and trying to help him anyway, but I could hear the beans growing closer. I simply nodded and headed off to look for her. I got there too late though. I ran into the guest bedroom just as I saw them surrounding her, a whole swarm of them. I couldn't tell how many due to all the hectic, violent movements. They had managed to break through the boards and the windows. They took up almost the entire room practically shoving each other onto the old squeaky mattress as they fought over their prey. 
She was tangled up in their grips, being snatched this way and that. She screamed at me to run, to flee for safety, but I felt that same paralyzing force take over my body. All I could do was watch, even though every fiber of my being screamed at me to try to help, to do something. A part of me knew that it would be pointless considering it took multiple gunshots to even take down one, which I had absolutely no ammo to do, but I felt like a piece of crap boyfriend at that moment. It was supposed to be my job to protect her, and I had failed. They fought over her like wild animals, clawing and biting at her as she screamed out in pain. A few of them left the group once they had ripped off a chunk of meat. I thought they would notice me, but they were too focused on their meal. My eyes flashed over their sharp teeth as they nibbled on it, before jumping back to my girlfriend. The fearful paralysis stayed over me until I watched them begin to stretch all four of her limbs out way beyond their limit. I started to scream as well as I realized that they were trying to rip her apart. Our screams mingled into a chorus of agony, hers being torn apart and mine at watching it all happen. I watched as they took her arms, the arms that I felt wrapped around me only hours before her. They took them so forcefully that I felt her red splatter across my face, barely missing my mouth. One began to nibble on her left hand, and tears poured from my eyes as I remembered imagining the perfect ring for that hand. I had even decided on one and had it hidden in my nightstand, waiting for the perfect time. But these things had taken that dream from me. I was watching my girlfriend being eaten alive, and I had no way to stop it. I screamed until I felt my vocal cords giving out, until I saw her head slump down as she passed out from the pain. At least I hoped it was her passing out and not dying. Once they were done with their meal, they surrounded me, aggressively sniffing me. I flinched every time they got too close, feeling their decayed and damaged skin scratch across my body. It was overwhelmingly uncomfortable, and I had to fight the urge to gag. The smell of rotten decay did nothing to help either. It was suddenly more noticeable since I wasn't focused on them eating my girlfriend. I didn't want to do anything to upset them or make them want to hurt me. Or worse, turn me into a fresh buffet like they had my girlfriend. So I fought the urge to flinch and stayed as still as I possibly could. Suddenly, a cry came from outside. Another one of their beings was emitting this god-awful screeching noise, calling them to it. Their attention became focused on it and they shot out of the room, nearly taking the doorframe off as they jammed their bodies through it. I don't know how I managed it, but I had made it out. I'm currently at a truck stop an hour away. I was shocked that our car hadn't been destroyed when I had made it out of the house, but I guess the beings had forgotten what vehicles were since they had been undead. Or maybe they never thought that we would even make it that far. All I know is that when I did, I shot out of that horrible community like a bat out of hell. I didn't even care about the potholes. Even if all those tires had gone flat, I would have driven until the rims on that thing were flat too. I'm not even going to lie. I drove over a few bodies on the roads. I don't know who they are, but I was more concerned about avoiding death than offending the dead. Especially with the whole army of the undead on the prowl. 
Now I'm waiting for the police to show up. I have no idea what happened to my phone, so I called them using a payphone. I have no idea if they'll believe me, but someone has to help the people in that town, if they're all even still alive. I sold myself on the dark web. Written by Doomed Geek. What do you do when there is nothing else left? I was a college graduate who, two years after collecting my certificate, was still unemployed. There was a gaping blank on my resume. Add to the fact that my debts were out of control, and it's fair to say that I was a mess and growing ever more desperate. So, what was I doing about all of this? How was I digging myself out of this hole? I was staying up all night, trawling through the internet. Is there a point at which the internet does end and sanity begins? I neither knew nor cared. I watched thousands of clips, read conspiracy theories and news reports, until they all blurred into one stream of hyperbole. I slept fitfully during the day, and went back online the minute I woke up. I would surf even though I needed to go to the bathroom, until it hurt. I forgot to eat or drink and soon I had a permanent background headache. Like a lot of addicts, it was not long before I moved on to the harder stuff, the deep web. I was sickened by a lot of what I saw, but I still immersed myself more and more. When I stumbled across this site that changed my life, it looked fairly innocuous at first. There was a simple hero image of the outline of a human body and a drop-down menu in the top right-hand side, accessed via three short lines. For other people, it's one more bet, one more drink. I clicked on one more link. I was surprised to see only two options, buyer and seller. I wasn't going to be buying anything anytime soon, so I followed the Warren Mart seller. This submenu left me open-mouthed. It listed items that could be sold and gave the price that the seller would receive. All I needed to do was add details for my preferred way to receive payment and then tick the box next to the item. The first item on the list was likeness. For the price shown, I could pay the two months I was overdue on my rent and buy wine and pizza every night for a week with what was left over. Now, I was not sure what was meant by likeness. Other items that I could sell via the website were more straightforward. Things like my social security number, my date of birth, and even my name. A lot of these seemed like a way to commit fraud for the buyers. 
all very dubious, but at least I thought. They were paying to use these details rather than simply stealing them, as so often happens. Likeness seemed more ethereal, though. I decided that it meant the right to use my image, a photograph of my face. I also decided I really wanted a beer and pizza and to be able to tell my landlord to get off my back because I had finally paid your dang rent. I added my details for the money transfer and take the box next to likeness and I press submit. A transaction processing symbol turned into a transaction complete and a new box appeared giving me the option to comment. I typed, do you need me to send you my photograph? Thinking that this would answer my question about what exactly I had just sold. A moment later, the reply came. We already have it. I flashed back to some of the things that I had done in front of the computer screen, and then decided that I would rather not think about it. Feeling nervous, sure, I was being scammed, about to kick myself for being so naive, but I checked my balance, and what do you know, the money was in there. I went back to the good old innocent web and ordered the largest, most overloaded pizza that I could think of. And then I began to add my sides. It took two weeks for me to blow through the money from selling my likeness, and I had had a great time without leaving my apartment, and I had paid no rent. Not to worry though, I told myself, and I returned back to the deep web and my new favorite website. This time, I hovered over her fingerprints. 30 seconds considering, fly day dozen dodgy things that this could lead to. But it was the money I would make that made me think, well, whatever. I ticked and submitted. This time, 10 small boxes appeared on screen, with an instruction for me to place the ends of my fingers in them. And which I did. And within seconds, the transaction was complete. And within minutes, I could see that I was once again flush. Problems over. I could pay my rent and enough off a credit card to make the bank back off. In the comment box, I typed, Thank you. The reply was almost immediate. You are welcome. Now, I don't know if anybody reading this is a gambler, but I guess if they are, they would not by now have put money on me spending the money wisely. And they would be right. And this time I told myself, another couple of weeks later, that I would get my act in gear. I spent a significant time going through the items that I could sell, and created a spreadsheet with how much I owed. So I knew the amount that I needed to earn with this one final sale of a part of me. I had decided to see that this had to be the last time. There was a relatively small number of things left that I could sell. 
while that I was prepared to sell. My name, date of birth, and social security number were all still no-goes. I didn't want to risk losing the ability to have a bank account and find employment. A history of being a disaster did not mean, in my mind, that I always would be. So, one final sale it was, and then I would clear my debts and find a job. I take the box next to sell, body part. From the next list, I ticked kidney. I was close to hyperventilating when I clicked submit. Close to tears not long afterwards when I checked my balance, I felt a huge pressure being lifted. With this money, I could finally get my life back on track. The comment box already had text in it. I had been too worked up to read it, so I finally took a deep breath and did. It was an eight-digit reference number, an address and a time later that day. An appointment for me to have my kidney removed, I figured. I considered not going. I already had the money, so why even bother? And then I thought back to the message telling me that they already had my photograph. Whoever ran the website probably knew where I lived as well. Or they could easily find out if they wanted. It was not rocket science to work out that they were probably bad people, criminals and in some kind of bad organization. Not people to cross or to mess around with. I felt sick as I left the apartment at the prospect of having an operation, but also elated at the amazing things lying ahead for me. I just needed to get this over with. The address turned out to be a nondescript building on the outskirts of town. The windows were all shuttered and there was no signage. Just the human outline I recognized from the website. A keypad was fixed into the wall next to a sturdy looking door. Not sure what else to do. I entered the reference number that I was given. The door slid open with a sigh. My stomach doing backflips. I stepped inside. I could hear the drone of an air conditioner, but I still suddenly felt very hot. Nerves, I told myself. Totally natural. I seemed to be in some kind of reception area, but it was deserted. Scratch that. A man appeared. He was wearing a white overall and mask and safety glasses. He may or may not have been smiling when he said, Welcome. Let's get you prepped. I followed him along a long corridor. The walls were blank, whitewashed, and the smell of antiseptic was growing stronger. Eventually, he turned off into a small, windowless room. I hesitated on the threshold. There was a raised table, fluorescent strips overhead. A stack of equipment next to the bed. Medical, I had guessed, though I really had no idea. Please. The man said in gesture that I should come in. 
I smiled weakly and did. He gave me a robe to put on and turned to do something to the equipment while I got changed. I assumed that I needed to lie on the table, and when he looked around from whatever it was that he had been doing and saw me, he said, Good. It made me feel like a dog rolling over and playing dead, but I kept this to myself. I did, though, have some questions. Is this all safe? I asked. Perfectly. He replied without even missing a beat. I wasn't sure. I felt hot to the point where I thought I was going to faint, and the lighting overhead was flickering, making pain start to flower above my eyes. I'm not sure I want to go ahead with this, I said. There's nothing to be concerned about. He replied and before I realized what was happening, had nicked the skin of my neck with a needle. I immediately felt an unpleasant tingling sensation and a numbness begin to spread up into my face. He picked up a tablet computer that was resting among the equipment and studied it for a moment before turning back to look at me and asking, Now, which eye would you like to keep? What? I exclaimed, or tried to, because my lips were numb and the word came out slurred. What are you talking about? I had managed. I sold one of my kidneys, not my eyes. I did not wait for an answer. I was horrified and decided that I wanted out of there. I tried to sit up, but the numbness had spread to my spine and then my arms. I was helpless to do anything but lie there and watch as he once more studied the tablet. No, no. He said in a quiet, relaxed voice. The records show that you agreed to sell a body part, but did not specify which one. My ticked kidney. I tried to say, but my mouth would not move and I couldn't feel my tongue. I could feel my heart beating faster and faster. It felt like I could not breathe. Cold sweat trickled down into my eyes, blurring my vision. I could see this. I could not feel it though. I wanted to scream. Wanted to cry out in terror. But my jaws were locked. My limbs useless. All I could do was watch as the scalpel came into view and as he lowered it slowly towards my left eye. It'll all be over soon. He said and then the blade became a shadow over my eye. A darkness that was soon all I could see. That was then, and this is now. I am writing this in an internet cafe, after trashing my laptop's hard drive and ditching it. There's just me in here and the owner. I think that he would like me to leave from the dirty looks that he's giving me, but before I head off, I have one more thing to do. I have enough money to buy a coach ticket and go a long way from here, away from everything and everyone that I have ever known. I have just logged onto the site and found what I'm looking for in the Southern menu. Name, date of birth, social security number. I tick sell on all three. Enter the details in the boxes that pop up. Press submit. And moments later, the money is in my account. I have been withdrawing as much cash as I can daily. 
and after I had crossed the road to the ATM and withdraw the latest amount, I will snap my card in half and throw it away. This will be a fresh start. The past wiped clean, left behind. I'm going to stop writing now and go. It's time to log off for good and make my escape. Only the screen has changed. The comment box has opened up, and a new message has appeared. We like and follow you. I feel tears begin to flow from the eye they did not take. I found a disturbing old video game demo in the corner of the mall. Does anyone recognize this game? Written by Darkly Gathers. When I was just a little kid, I remember finding it in the corner of a mall, or maybe it was a large toy store. A video game unlike any other I had ever played. The toy store felt, as I'm sure they do to all kids, colossal, a sprawling labyrinth of wonder and excitement, with the great high ceilings and rows and rows and shelves beyond count of attention-grabbing, vibrant curiosities. There was a big video game section too, tucked away in one subtle corner. At least it felt subtle to me, at the time, and being too short to see over the shelves and stacks, only furthered my impression of the size of the place. The video game in question was set up as a demo play. I cannot for the life of me remember the console, but everything else is crystal clear. It comes to me on occasion, in my dreams. I can see it now. I am standing before the console, looking up at the screen. Alone, I have left my parents behind. It is the only place that I dare to do so, as I reason that there are far worse places to get lost than inside a toy store such as this one. I turn my head to look at the promo for the game. It's a cardboard stand taller than myself. The overhead light flickers for a second, sending out shadows across the shelves. The cardboard stand proudly proclaims the name of the game. Explorer 99, it reads in bold text. Beneath it, the titular character has been drawn in such a way that it looks like he's bursting out of the cardboard itself. He is blocky and polygonal. His hair is red, his teeth are white, and his eyes are shining and wide. He is staring at something, something that I cannot see. I want to know more about him. I want to know his story. And so I tap the controller, fastened to the console with cord and the screen's lights. Enter name. It says simply. I slowly type it in. J-A-C-O-B. And then press enter. I am greeted by a simple black screen. A sentence of white text appears in the middle. Explorer 99 is lost. He was left behind. I shiver though I do not know why. I glance around, but it is quiet here. I cannot remember if there was any music playing throughout the store when I had entered, but there is nothing playing now. The cold, hard floor reflects only dimly the flickering lights up and way overhead, 
and the atmosphere of this fantastic store is now entirely alien to me. Games line the shelves, console accessories, they don't look as bright as they did before. And if I peer around the cardboard cutout, there is nothing but more games, endless rows of endless games. I return my attention to the screen, tapping the controls and subsequently changing the display. The text vanishes, and the game fades into view. It's a menu screen. Blurred in the background is an unrecognizable landscape, and the foreground is comprised of a series of floating text boxes. New game, load game, options, return. After a few mere seconds of considering what to navigate to, the new game selection is made for me with a low and gritty sound effect. The screen fades to black and then slowly to what I presume to be the beginning of the game. I tap the stick to the left and then to the right. I appear to be in control of what can only be Explorer 99 himself. He faces away from the camera. He is short and squat and squarish. I cannot see his face right now like I can on the cardboard cutout. His feet pitter-patter against the ground, but the character himself doesn't seem to be making any noise. There is no music in the game. Not yet, at least. Explorer 99 appears to be standing in the ruins of a large building. An office of some sort, or maybe a school that's hard to tell. Overgrown, trees sprout up from the floor and vines form the setting's border. The sky, as far as I can tell, a uniform gray. The ground is a repeated texture, cracked and mossy tile. Roughly half of this ruined school is outside, and the other half is still covered by a long, cracked roof. There are two levels that you can reach by climbing up the stairs, and strung up across the walls are a series of mirrors embedded into the tile and trees. If you stand still near one of these mirrors for long enough, I find the camera refocuses. It shifts closer, and you can see Explorer 99's face reflected in the glass. He doesn't look quite like he does in the cutout. There is no pearly white grin. His eyes don't look bright. They seem shadowed and sad. He glances sideways to his reflection. He glances and I start in amazement. I lean closer, dumbfounded. The pixels become blurred and the buzzing of the screen rumbles faintly in my ears as I watch, staring, waiting to watch him do it again. But he does not. His standing still animation simply plays over and over, over and over. A slight shrug in the shoulders. A slight bend in the knees, but nothing more. So reluctantly, I move him along. My hands are sweating, I realize, and my mouth is dry. Despite the poor quality graphics, a part of me feels like I am there with him. I am there with Explorer 99 in the ruins. Is it a curious mismatch of scenery that I explore? Bland, featureless walls. Glassy windows, fine cabinets, and bare desks. But these are the only man-made objects. The rest is rock and tree and vine. 
The backdrop is a grim, gray-green forest. And then, there are those peculiar, shiny mirrors. All around, some out in the open, some further back in the shadows of the building, on the lower level. Hidden and tucked away around corners, by broken staircases that lead to nowhere. After much running around and accomplishing little, I try to jump into one. Into one of the mirrors right through the glass. And I find that I am able to do so. Here we go. The world warps and shimmers as Explorer 99 disappears through the glass. The screen changes. It fades to black and then quickly back to pixelated color. I see 99 and jump out from the mirror and into a new world. I become all at once a deal colder. And goosebumps shiver up across my skin as I scan the camera around our new surroundings. This place looks massive. The Explorer 99 stands on a little island of stone in the middle of a dark sea. The waves are not designed with any froth, so they bulge and warp disturbingly, like there is something monstrous pressing up from beneath. There is still no music but an ever-present and subtle bubbling becomes the new backing track as I look around for a way to go. The water, up close and far away, is littered with shattered shards of rock, enormous broken pillars and platforms and arches, watery desolation. There is no shore to be seen, just rock and ruin. So I jump from the island to the closest shard and land awkwardly upon it, I jump from this one to the next, and then to the next and the next. On and on I go, jumping, careful to never fall into the grim, reflectionless water below. After a while, I see something flicker in the distance. A glitch, perhaps. Perhaps. But it still unsettles me. And the ruin that I have just jumped to has a series of black scribbled lines across the face of its rocky outcrop like words. I have the option to select it, and I do so. Accompany that strange, gritty sound effect. A text box appears at the top of the screen. Here lies Jacob, lost to the ways. May he be found again one day. A spike of panic shoots up through my nervous system, and I grip the controller in terrified hands. But of course, it's just a custom feature. I force myself to relax. They had asked for my name at the beginning. It's just a way to freak out the players. Haha, I murmur weakly, eyes still transfixed on the screen. It's all that I can see now. There is nothing else around me, only out of focus shadow. There is the game and nothing more. I jump across the platforms, traversing the surface of the sea. As I land on a wide pillar of stone, two black bars slide into view, one on the top and one on the bottom of the screen. A cutscene. The camera zooms close to Explorer 99. He turns to look out to sea, across the ruins that are scattered far into the distance. We came here together. They were my friends, he says silently, in the form of a text box, and then that's it.
the cutscene is over. I become aware of just how empty this game is. There are no enemies, none that I've seen yet. There is no one to interact with. It's lonely, and I feel 99's loneliness as if it were my own. It's just a game. I remind myself as I jump from ruin to ruin. It's not real. But I forget this fact in almost an instant, as my judgment slips. As I land an awkward jump on the curved edge of a ruin, and slide down into the dark water below with a splash. The screen instantly cuts to black and I find myself frozen, breath caught on my throat. I do not know why this game is impacting me so heavily, but I can't deny its grip. I see 99 fade into view on the water. He is a small, pale gray figure amongst the watery shadow. It's so deep. So dark. The abyss. A low textured something drifts through the darkness far below, barely visible at all. My heart rate skyrockets as I jerk the directional stick around, forcing 99 to swim, to find my way back to the surface. It's getting closer. Come on, I mutter. Or maybe I just think it. Come on! But it's not until 99 has safely surfaced with a splashing sound effect, and I have awkwardly scrambled back up onto the nearest ruin, that I am able to allow myself to breathe. My chest aches, and my hands shake as I try to gather myself. The platform is narrow, and I don't have much space. I don't want to fall in again. Once I'm sure that I'm in the clear, I continue along my way, jumping from ruin to ruin, climbing and clamoring where necessary. The only sounds are the bubbling of the water, and the taps of 99's feet against the stones. And then, just like that, the ruins come to an end. Or at least, there are no further places for me to jump. I try to turn back but find that the ruins are all in the process of slowly sinking beneath the surface. They dip below the water and shimmer in grayish blue, growing quickly fainter and fainter, and then vanishing altogether. Did I screw up? Did I miss something that I was supposed to collect? I asked aloud, but there is no one to answer, of course. There are only the waves of the pixelated sea. And as I contemplate what to do, the ruin upon which I am standing starts to sink. With gritted teeth, I navigate around the ruin, climbing up it as fast as I can as the water rises from beneath. It's tall, this one, a cracked tower rising up and out of the sea. I clamor up and up, around and around, sweating with the exertion. The dark waters pool hungrily around the tower's base, gradually swallowing it down. It spins in a slow circle as it disappears, and I eventually find myself at the tower's summit. There is nowhere to go now. The camera swings around to refocus and as it passes over the face of the water, I swear that I catch a glimpse of a large and terrible shape beneath the sea's surface. I reorient in a panic, 
trying to angle myself so that I can see that same patch of water again. But when I'm successful, there isn't nothing there. Only churning, colorless waves. The tower sinks lower and lower. I'm running out of time. Jump, says Explorer 99 in his silent text box. What? I reply, but he says nothing further. So with throat dry and nothing supposedly to lose, I jump, out and away from the tower, and for a terrible moment, I feel as if I'm going to drop. If I will fall to my doom in the abyss, my stomach lurches. But I find myself instead, landing on an invisible platform with a thud, shaking but relatively still in midair, as the tower is swallowed up and disappears down into the darkness below. A further few seconds of quiet follow. I dare not to move for fear of falling from the invisible perch into the water. And then a chime sounds through these speakers and the screen cuts away. Another quick fade to black. And when it returns, I am back in the overgrown school. Back where I started. The layout is just the same as it was before. But the mirror that I had jumped through is now cracked. It no longer reflects the face of Explorer 99. A placard has appeared at the mirror's base and I am able to select it. With trembling fingers, I do so. It reads, In memory of those lost to the flood, what they built for us, we hope to one day see again. We take a time to reflect. I do not like this game. It makes me feel small and afraid and alone, but it captivates me like nothing else that I've ever played. So I carry on through the ruins, round the corners and past the thick undergrowth, and holding my breath, I jump right on through the next of the awaiting mirrors. Explorer 99 and I jump through the mirror and the screen performs its ritual change to black before fading into the next world. The mirror through which I came is nowhere to be seen this time. I stand in the center of a racetrack, though there are no cars, and the stands are all deserted. I run the length of low-quality grass to the black of the track, and as I step foot onto it, I am met with a quick new cutscene. The black bars narrow the screen in after a beat. Explorer 99 looks to his left and then to his right. The sky suddenly glows in a bright blue and reddish leaves blow past the camera. Faint ghostly apparitions of cars race around and around, with accompanying sound effects that quickly drift away into nothing. We would come here together, 99 says with his text box. They did not mean to leave me behind. And as before, the cryptic cutscene comes to an end. The sky fades to its original gray and the spectral cars all disappear. The silent melancholy returns and I run around the length of the stadium, jumping and bumping into walls, exploring every inch for a clue, for something, for anything, round and around. 
There are no objects to interact with here. I don't find a single thing until I have left through a narrow archway and the stadium's wall. In front of me is a pile of tires and a glowing white box in the grass. Bumping into the tires, sees them spill and roll out over the grass. The grass which forms the endless, flat landscape to the horizon in all directions. No, not all directions, says a 99, and I clench the controller tight. Can you, can you hear me, or my thoughts? I whisper, but there is no response. The glowing white box, once I am standing in it, allows me to select it. Doing so only creates the following message. Insufficient parts for new vehicle. I try bumping a few tires into the box along with me, but they do nothing, and the message remains unchanged. So, I start to run around the outside of these stadium walls. Round and around I go, sticking close to the wall at first. I have an irrational fear that if I stray too far then, I'll be swept away. Swept away across the vast plains towards nothingness and oblivion. So, this does not happen. And after a few minutes of the receptive tap-tap-tap of 99's feet, I reach the other side of the stadium. And there up ahead in the distance stands an enormous, singular mountain. It rises from the grass far, far away. And the face of a girl is carved into the mountain's rock. She stares up longingly at the sky, and a flicker of melancholy, familiarity passes over me. It's a feeling that I didn't understand back then, and one that I can only give words to now. Who is she? I ask, but 99 says nothing. I push aside my fears of the vast and empty nothingness, and set out across the pixelated plains towards the mountain running in as straight a line as I can. It seems like I'm simply running in place for a while, but then it becomes clear that the mountain is growing larger, steadily drawing closer and closer at a creeping pace. A vehicle would help. I murmur aloud. I could drive there quicker. She drove the best. She drove the furthest, says Explorer 99. My fear ripples with his words. I do not understand, but I want to. I want to understand so badly. The sense of barely scratching the surface is maddening. I need to know more of what happened here. It takes me a long time to reach the base of the mountain. I do not know how long exactly, but I feel physically exhausted by the time that I have arrived at the poor quality textured rock that rises from the grass. There is, I notice, a small dark groove in the mountainside. I have the option to select it, and I do so. Let her go. Reads a text box across the top of the screen. After a long hesitation, I press the button to agree. Explorer 99 draws an item from his pocket, something mostly red and a little green and more colorful than anything else I've seen so far in this world, or any of the others. He places it carefully into the groove, and it disappears from sight. 
A doorway opens in the base of the mountain. I turn to take one last look at the faraway stadium, now small in the distance, and then step on through the doorway and disappear into the mountain's tunnel. The screen fades to black, and when colors return, I am back in the forested ruins. The once shiny portal of a mirror is now cracked and gray, and as before, a placard has appeared at its base. I tap the button and select it to read what it says. In memory of those precious to us, to those who dared to drive, their spirit, we hope to construct one day for ourselves. We take a time to reflect. Music has started to play from the game, I now realize, though I could not have pinpointed when it started exactly. A gentle yet stirring 8-bit violin, alone in the background. Its chords are long and eerie. I jump through the ruins, down a corridor leading into the dark. There is a large hole in the ground here. I do not want to know if jumping down would lead to a new area, or if it would kill me. So I give it some distance for now. There is a mirror beside it at least and I run towards it, jumping through to the next plane. The screen fades to black and then, after taking a moment to load, I find myself standing in the desert. Pale yellowish-gray dunes rise up and all around, and simple pixelated faraway clouds drift across a dark and purple sky. I am unable to run particularly high up the dunes. After a certain point, I simply slip back down to these sandy tracks, so I make my way around them instead. The camera pans way back, and I become a tiny figure in the center of the screen, my footsteps small and distant as I cross the desert. The alienation is terrifying. I am desperate to see another character, any character at all. An enemy would do, but... There is nothing. There is only solitude. Some of the dunes give way after a while. The enormous, broken skeletons of monsters lay splayed out across the sands, most half-buried. Dinosaurs, maybe, or dragons. But they are all long dead now. I use the bones of one such wreck as platforms to jump up until I can reach a new level of desert above the tracks through the dunes. I pass by a rusted and damaged old klaxon, suspended high on a battered metal pole through the sands, and as I do so, it starts to wail. It's low at first, rising to a crescendo, but it gets louder and louder. I can feel it rattle around my head as I start to panic. A text box appears. The storm approaches. Do you remember the storm? And sure enough in the distance, great billowing clouds have begun their approach. Faded and low textured at first, but becoming clearer and clearer. Lightning sparks from cloud to cloud. It's coming. I start to run, jumping desperately across the desert. But there is nothing. No protection that I can see at all. 
As if in response to this thought, the camera suddenly changes, and a dark shape becomes visible up ahead down one of the tracks. I turn to head towards it, as the rumbling of the storm grows closer and closer. The shape is the wreck of a lone skyscraper, the last one standing. The edges of the storm start striking into the screen as I approach. I have no visible health, but the edges of the screen flash painfully as if I'm being dealt damage as the claws of the storm strike out towards me. The world grows darker and darker, and the rumbling only increases. With knuckles white against the controller, I finally make it into the shadow of the skyscraper, and I head on inside with a gasp of relief. There are no doors remaining, only cracked and open doorways, and mercifully, the flashing at the edges of my vision comes to a steady cease. I catch my breath in here and look through one of the broken windows. The light is almost entirely faded now, and it is clear that the building has become enveloped in the stormy darkness of the sand clouds. I catch sight of a splash of color against one of these skyscrapers' bare inner walls, and I turn to look at it. Graffiti. In white, black and blue against the building's dark gray, it's a mural of sorts. A group of people, all with the rough body shape of the titular character Explorer 99. He is amongst them, I see. Or at least, I think that it's him. The mural doesn't use the color red at all, the color of his hair, but it does look like him. The others all have clearly different features, though they're all smiling, grinning wide with pearly white teeth. I try to move 99 and find that I am unable. A cutscene, perhaps. But there are no black bars at the top or bottom of the screen. Nothing is happening, and I can still move the camera. I try again, and this time we move. There is no furniture in the skyscraper. There are only cracked walls and windows, and a staircase tucked in the corner. I run to it and climb up and around to the next level. The story is the same here, so up I climb. To a third floor and then a fourth. But here, my ascension ends as these stairs in this level are broken. Part of the wall has given way, and I can see out into the rush of the rumbling storm. What I think are supposed to be scraps of paper can be seen on the floor. So I head over to them. I'm in surprise to find that they can be selected. A text box appears at the top of my field of vision. The battles are done now, but the war goes on. I consider this for a moment in somber silence. There don't appear to be any ways for me to go now. I turn to look around the room again and am unsettled to see that an open doorway leading away into pitch black, has appeared in one of the walls. I swallow anxiously. That'll be the way to go then. And so I run right through, holding my breath as the warmth of the desert is ripped away, as the darkness envelops me in its entirety. And for a while, 
There is only this. The darkness. I begin to panic. Where's the game? Did I do something wrong? Crap. But just as I am about to shout into the void, the screen returns to color. I am back in the ruined building with its overgrown forest. And, as expected, the mirror before me is now cracked with a placard placed beneath. I tap to read it. In memory of the groups we formed, to the tracks that we made across the plains, the sands of time are unforgiving. We take a time to reflect. Explorer 99 stands silent in the shadows. I have begun to cry, though I do not know why. The game goes on. Two mirrors left, I think, as I turn and race through the ruins. My feet clack, clack, clack against the grass tile floor, and I do not hesitate when I reach the location of the next mirror. On the upper floor and tucked between two empty and vine-entangled shelves, through the glass I go, and the screen performs its dutiful warp and change, fading to black and then back to its dim and dreary light. Except it's different in here. It's dark for sure, but the light comes out in low flashes, yellows, blues, and reds. I appear to be underground in some kind of, I don't know, scientific research center, or something. There are blinking dials and desks, the lights embedded in the walls, but I am not able to interact with any of it. My feet tap against the floor as I explore this mysterious place, though I am disturbed to find that these sounds of the tapping continue for a little longer each time after I have stopped moving. I try to keep my nerves steady and push away the thought that there might be something in here with me. I know what I wished for earlier, for someone or something to interact with, but I take it back now. I take it back as I consider being stalked in the shadows of this underground lair. I spend a long time down here in the dark, between the mysterious desks and dials. The lights are rhythmic, soothing even, despite the potential threat that lurks in the darkness. I discover a console in what I presume to be the area center. It forms part of a round circle of desks and I am able to select a series of lights on the console surface. Every time that I try, however, I am eventually met with a short and frustrating sound effect and the text box message. You have forgotten us. Over and over, no matter what I select, you have forgotten us. I flume with frustration, unsure what to do. And to my cold dismay, I hear the footsteps come again. Not just an echo of my own though, this time as I've been standing stock still. This time the sound comes of its own accord, and a stab of fear strikes into me. Come on, I mutter desperately, what do I do here? But I work it out even as I ask aloud my question. The rhythmic flashing of the lights. It's rhythmic for a reason. It's a pattern. 
So I run to the edge of the room and watch the lights flash again. From red and then to yellow. Back to red and then to blue. Back through yellow, blue, and red. Right, okay. I try it. I run back to the console and try to repeat this pattern. I fail the first time. And the second time too. As the footsteps grow louder and louder. And there is lots of them now. They are running. Running in the darkness. Come on. I try again with shaking hands. Repeating the sequence of the lights. Tap, tap, tap. Red to yellow. To red to blue. And to my relief. This time it works. There's a bright flash and the sound of exploding sparks. For a second, the entire complex is illuminated in a bright and blinding light. And I swear, I swear that I can see a series of somethings all around. Blurs between the desks and dials. But the flash only lasts a second before I am plunged in total darkness. My heart beats fast, but I stay stock still. And the darkness eventually disappears. The desks and computer equipment have vanished. Ahead is a lone, large screen. Jacob, it reads in bright yellow. Explorer 99 speaks. His words appear in text across the bottom of the screen. It is so easy to forget. I am sorry. I run towards the screen and passed right through it, as if it were made of water. The lights fade to dark, and when they return, I am again standing back in the overground building, the game's central hub. The mirror is broken, and the placard beneath, once selected, reads, In memory of the lights of our world, to the patterns they created with us in the darkness, we must do our best to remember. We take a time to reflect. A newfound sense of urgency has overcome me. I race through this ruined place, though I cannot help but think now on what it might have once been, on what might have lined these shelves, on who might have frequented here in its prime. I locate the final mirror, at the very back of the building, and semi-obscured by blocky, pixelated leaves, and I jump on through into the unknown. The landscape, when it reveals itself, is red, deep, thick, scarlet. The sky is black. Steam bursts from vents all across the alien ground. I seem to take damage if I walk through them, and I wince in pain as the edges of my vision flash and blur. The sound of a high-pitched, whistling tone plays steadily in the distance, loud and shrill, and it sets me desperately on edge. This place is the worst. This is the worst of them. The floor is littered with weapons, guns mostly. They are oversized and many are unusual colors. Dark purples, red. A few are even gold. But I cannot pick any of them up or interact with them in any way. There's a rifle, a sniper, an RPG, but I cannot take any of them for myself, 
I am scared now. The sense of impending terror that is steadily built over the course of the game is strong now. I can feel the end and I fear it. Why did we become separated? Explorer 99 asks in his text box. It was so much better before. I have no answer for him. I just keep running and dodging as best as I can. Enormous chains had begun to slither and strike out across the far landscape, unreachable but ominous in the background. 99 speed has dropped significantly. I can no longer run, and it becomes harder to avoid the steam from the earthy vents. Come on, I mutter through clenched teeth. Come on, 99. The ground has begun to shake. It splits and cracks, and I am met with a cutscene. I stare up to the black sky overhead as the camera shifts. An enormous, blood-stained rope, writhing and uncoiling, like a monstrous snake rises up from the ground, towering tall above us. The end of it frays and splits to create a split-open and worm-like mouth. It roars down at us as sweat clams my hands. It is horrific. The cutscene ends and the rope strikes down towards us. I slam 99 out of the way, though his speed is still massively slowed. To my dismay, as the disorienting music increases in speed and pitch, I realize that I am still unable to pick up any of the weapons. I try them all as I dodge the strikes of the rope, but nothing seems to work. I am unable to interact with the world around me in the way that I want to. The edges of the world have begun to crack and split and fall away into nothing. 99, I murmur, with iron focus. You have to want to pick them up. I can't make it work without you. You need to want to pick up the weapon. Please. And as the cracks strike out across the ground towards us, as a chorus of other instruments join the music of our world, Explorer 99 starts to glow, faintly at first but noticeably. My choices make no difference, appears in 99's text box. Of course they do. I reply as the robe strikes down again and again. One of them lands, and our vision is blurred with a burst of pain. Please, they do. I'm only a kid. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. But words come to me. Something I plead will resonate. They would remember you, 99, and they live through you now. If you want them to live on... Then you have to live too. And the aura that surrounds Explorer 99 grows brighter. The angle of the camera changes and a multitude of select icons burst to life around the weapons with a melodic series of sound effects. With a desperate exclamation of relief, I sprint to the nearest, an enormous silver over the shoulder thing, and equipped it with a satisfying click. Taking quick aim, I bring it around, and with a burst of colorful fire, the screen is rocked with a shake, and the colossal twisted rope is struck, 
and knocked back with a wailing screech. I run around, jumping from place to place, firing again and again and again, until the rope can do nothing but burn. And at last, it releases one final furious scream and sizzles into black dust. And then, nothingness. I try to move, but I am frozen in place. And catching my breath, I look around, tensed, waiting, waiting for something to happen next. And we watch. Explorer 99 and I, as alone, white sun rises slowly above the horizon. The black of the sky starts to shimmer and glitch, from black into shards of gray and then silver, with the occasional flash of blue and yellow. Explorer 99 heads towards it. Not I. I am not in control of his movements as he races across the red plains. But together, we reach a lone door, standing by itself in the middle of the path. An option appears to us. Enter. Yes. No. The yes is currently highlighted, but it needs me to select it. So selected I do. I tap the button and I watch as 99 takes hold of the handle. Light spills from behind the door, but I cannot see where it leads. 99 steps through, and he vanishes from sight. The screen fades to black. I am not returned to the overgrown ruins this time. I do not get given a chance to see the cracked mirror nor to read what was written on its accompanying placard. Instead, a simple line of text appears in the center of the screen. I am overcome with a rush of conflicting emotion as I read it through. Explorer 99 has been found. Thank you for playing. Game over. And that's it. That's it. I realize that I'm staring back into my own face, my reflection in the dark screen of the monitor. I see my hands shaking on the controller. I don't even know what to feel. So I just stand there in silence and read the words over again. I tap one of the buttons and just about jump out of my skin in terror as I feel the hand grab my shoulder. I shout out loud in alarm and look back, staring up into the face of my own mom. There you are, Jacob, she laughs, already hurrying me away from the games and back through the store. We were looking for you. It's about to close, you know. Come along now. I try to splutter out a response, but I don't know what to say. There are too many thoughts whirling around my head. From somewhere nearby, I hear the creak and gentle thud of a door opening and closing. I see the lights above the game section flicker as I'm about to be encouraged around a corner. And I see one last thing too, only for a second. But I'm convinced. I'm convinced by what I see. The cardboard cutout to the right of the demo game. The character has changed. I'm certain. The face is different. The hair. 
He has been drawn in such a way that it looks like he is bursting out of the cardboard itself. And above it, in large, bold text, it reads, Explorer 98, and it vanishes from view. I still dream of that game sometimes, you know, and the toy store too. I looked for them, I really did, but I never found them again. My parents took me back to what they thought was the same place in response to my pleading, but it wasn't the same place. It was different. I don't know the whole story, and I'm sorry if I have raised more questions than answers, but please promise me, if you ever find such a game on your travels, please just play it as best as you can. They need our help. I'm sure of it. Thank you all for listening to this week's stories. As always, wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.